Why, hello there, my little ghouls, goblins, and gamers. It's your host, Skeleton Grave, here to introduce a very special episode, because it's that time of the year where the vacant lot of my heart has thrown up a spirit Halloween sign. A decade ago, in 2020, I put together this multi-part series on the history of found footage horror movies, and seeing as Brian is now playing the big NSP show in the sky, I figured I could drag you all down to three hours of shaky cam hell. If you're like me and went into October like, um, I'm going to watch 31 horror movies in 31 days and are now halfway through the month having watched nothing, like why did I expect to miraculously not have depression this October? Then perhaps listening to someone talk about horror movies is more your speed. So grab some candy corn, and I do not want to hear any candy corn slander in this house, and settle in for some spooks. Listener beware, you're in for a uh, learning. You're in, you're in for, uh, some learning. Thanks. It was Halloween night, 1938. Across the nation, a smattering of people tuned their radios to the Columbia Broadcasting System to hear the Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Take off! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole through luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me that... Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. What happened next has gone down in the annals of history as a legendary hoax. This silly radio play based on a classic science fiction novel by H.G. Wells had fooled the nation into thinking we were under attack by alien invaders. Mass hysteria ensued. The incident was shrouded in controversy and was seen as an embarrassment to everyone involved. But really, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't. The seeds laid by this simple radio drama in 1938 not only launched the long and illustrious career of Orson Welles, but was also a landmark moment for the horror genre. One of the reasons horror is such a powerful, visceral method of storytelling is that it, at its core, is about articulating societal anxieties like World War and transforming them into memorable experiences in a way few other genres can. They're thrilling. They make your brain chemicals go into overdrive. 
And most importantly, they simultaneously give viewers a moment of escapism while also providing a sense of mastery over their own fears. But the War of the Worlds broadcast changed the way that we interact with these kinds of stories by presenting horror with a semblance of realism, blurring the lines between fact and fiction. And this inspired generations upon generations of others to follow in those footsteps, to use horror to flirt with the illusory nature of truth. After the release of The Blair Witch Project in 1999, found footage became an easy way to make a horror movie with little directing experience on a micro-budget. With the accessibility this provided and the sudden influx of consumer-grade production tools, the market over the past 20 years has become oversaturated with seemingly low-effort, low-quality found footage movies. As a result, a lot of people have written off the genre entirely. Well, today, my friends, I'm here to tell you that found footage is good, actually. Not only did the genre not start with The Blair Witch Project, it actually stems from roots laid by a Danish silent film made 100 years ago and has a long and storied history throughout the 20th century. So join me as I explore how this genre has evolved through the years, delve into the fascinating behind-the-scenes stories of these films, and recommend some underrated gems that might just change your mind about found footage. I'm your host, Leighton Gray, and this is Deep Cuts. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. They're coming to get you, Barbara. What's your favorite scary movie? Of course, the reputation of the War of the Worlds broadcast precedes it. But the so-called mass hysteria caused by the broadcast has been greatly exaggerated over the years. As the very salty announcement the station played once an hour after the broadcast stated, there were multiple disclaimers during the program cautioning that the show was fiction. For those listeners who tuned into Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the air broadcast from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tonight and did not realize that the program was merely a modernized adaptation of H.G. Wells' famous novel, War of the Worlds, we are repeating the fact, which was made clear four times on the program, that, while the names of some American cities were used, as in all novels and dramatizations, the entire story and all of its incidents were fictitious. Further, the broadcast had stiff competition. The most popular radio program in the country, the Chase and Sanborn Hour, was airing at the exact same time, so a very small portion of people heard the War of the Worlds broadcast in the first place. The book War of the Worlds was the first piece of fiction about alien invasions and spawned an entire genre of science fiction due to its popularity at the time, and this incident only added to its reputation. And despite Orson Welles' statement at the time that, quote, if I'd planned to wreck my career, I couldn't have gone about it better, end quote. Within two years, the infamy this broadcast provided allowed him to make what is considered one of the greatest movies of all time, Citizen Kane. Certainly, a small percentage of actual listeners to the broadcast were fooled, the nation did receive a lot of calls, and yes, cops did storm the production studio, but it was not nearly the nationwide panic people have since made it out to be. 
Let's take a listen to this interview with Orson Welles and H.G. Wells, recorded on the second anniversary of the War of the Worlds broadcast, the first and only time the two met. Well, I've had uh, uh, a series of the most delightful experiences seemed to, since I came to America. But the best thing that has happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson. I find him the most delightful uh, uh, carrier. He carries my name in an extra E that I hope he'll drop sooner or later. <laughs> See no sense in it. And uh, I've uh, known his work before he made this sensational Halloween uh, spree. <laughs> Are you sure there was such a panic in America or wasn't it your Halloween fun? <laughs> I think that's the nicest thing that, a, mm. that a, a, a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. I, I think it's very nice of Mr. Welch to say that uh, not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it. I, that was our impression in England. We had articles about it and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? <laughs> yes. mm. Well, the, uh, there was some excitement caused. I uh, really can't uh, belittle the amount that was caused, but I think that the people uh, got what, over it very quickly, don't what you? What kind of excitement, Mr. H.G. Wells wants to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement that we extract from uh, a practical joke in which somebody puts a sheet over his head and says, boo, I don't think anybody believes that that individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and, and rush down the hall. Mm-hmm. And that's just about what happened. That's, that's a very excellent description. You, you aren't quite serious in America yet. <laughs> you haven't got the war right under your uh, chins, and the consequence is you can still uh, play with ideas of terror and conflict. You think that's good or bad? It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it. As the Wellses say, The reporting on the story was what was more widespread and caused this moral outrage over falsehoods being depicted as truth. Which honestly makes sense, because the idea of a radio program causing riots to break out in the streets is a fantastic story. So it completely scans that the cultural consciousness has inflated this tale to mythic levels. As we move through this chronology, we'll see this happen a lot. The discussion over the ethics of presenting fiction as fact, even tenuously, continues to roll through the same cycle over and over. This episode is about found footage, but it's also about the nature of controversy and how that controversy propels and organically markets these stories in a way that just doesn't happen with other media. So without any further ado, let's follow H.G. Wells' advice and get into a bit of Halloween fun. Nanook of the North, a 1922 silent film by American director Robert Joseph Flaherty, is commonly credited as the first feature-length documentary. The film follows the struggles of an Inuit family attempting to survive the unforgiving climate of the Great White North. The movie was a commercial success and, to this day, is considered one of the greatest documentaries of all time. But while Flaherty was capturing snapshots of daily life in the Canadian Arctic, across the world in Denmark, a filmmaker by the name of Benjamin Christensen was poring over occult books. On a trip to a Berlin bookshop, 
Christensen discovered a copy of the Malleus Maleficarum, a comprehensive text covering the history of witch hunts and demonology. This sparked an obsession. He spent the next two years exhaustively researching witches and synthesized his 60 primary sources into the first true docudrama, Hixon, Witchcraft Through the Ages. The black-and-white silent film combines educational explanations of history with live-action dramatizations of the topics covered. While not found footage in the traditional sense, I consider it to be foundational to the found footage subgenre due to the groundbreaking combination of horror and documentary that would inspire later filmmakers to fuse the two to create horror mockumentaries. Huxon was the most expensive Scandinavian silent film ever made at 2 million Swedish kroner, and it shows. The movie utilizes stop-motion animation, historical wood etchings, innovative reversals of footage, genuinely impressive practical creature effects, special effects makeup, and elaborate costumes. Double exposure techniques are used to represent ghosts leaving their corporeal bodies with one particularly striking sequence showing witches flying through town and into hell on broomsticks and tridents. All narration is of course presented through text, and each cut back to the footage feels shocking, adding to the unsettling atmosphere. Different prints of the film have included a variety of classical pieces, one even including a narration by William S. Burroughs. Honestly, the movie is striking even today. A horse skeleton shrouded by cloth wanders through hell. Women dance laughing on the cross. Women are not only naked, but have sex with demons. They feast on dead babies that they hoist by their ankles. Women literally kiss Satan's fetid ass. So, perhaps unsurprising, considering a 2020 movie that showed Satan getting his salad tossed by a bunch of elderly women would cause an outcry, Hexon was promptly banned in many countries for gore and, quote, depictions of sexual perversions. One critic argued that even showing it in the, quote, enchanted world of the movie theater, end quote, was totally obscene and that it should instead be locked up away from public view. Worth noting is that there's a piece of imagery that's repeated several times in Hexon one of the devil rapidly churning butter while watching naked women. And yes, it looks as sexual as you're imagining. And it's not just included to be a dirty joke, either. Butter and milk were cornerstones of medieval diets, and women were relegated to milking and churning to produce it. But more than that, butter and milk represented a person's material and mortal wealth, going as far as to be conflated with one's personal happiness. So there was this idea that if you were taking butter from other people, you were really taking their happiness. And a so-called devil's milkmaid was a woman who was blamed for using sorcery to steal the milk from neighbors' cows and have all the butter to herself. It's indicative of the witch hunt mindset that women were blamed for a natural side effect of poverty, poor health, and harsh conditions, and this is precisely the point that Hickson seeks to make. Remember Robert Eggers' 2015 film, The Witch, or, you know, The, the Vivitch? It's more fun to say. Anyway, Eggers has gone on record saying it's directly inspired by Hickson. And then there's the famous line uttered by Black Philip. What dost thou want? What canst thou give? Wouldst thou like the taste of butter? A pretty dress? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? It's not just because, you know, butter is good and we all like it, but it's a representation of Thomason choosing to take her happiness and freedom by force. All of that to say that the influence of the movie isn't just so enduring due to the genre-defining format. The strength of it is based in research and the strong symbolism and themes throughout. So when we talk about a piece of media being timeless, that's usually what it comes down to. 
when there's a humane core to a piece of cinema, people will always be able to relate to it. And speaking of which, and getting a little bit nerdier about film history in general, the extreme and emotionally raw close-ups of old women in Hickson also inspired director Carl Theodore Dreyer to incorporate them into his own work, most notable in his classic The Passion of Joan of Arc, 1928, which in turn has influenced countless filmmakers. Hickson is absolutely worth checking out, and I'll discuss its relevance more later when we get to talking about The Blair Witch. And if you want to see it, Hickson is public domain, so you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. There are a few more cultural stepping stones that set the stage for future found footage films, so let's touch on those a bit. George Romero's iconic 1968 Night of the Living Dead has influenced the genre in innumerable ways that I'll likely cover in a future episode of Deep Cuts. But notable to the found footage genre is its incorporation of fake news footage covering the zombie outbreak. This lent a level of realism to the movie much in the same way the original breaking news framing of the War of the Worlds broadcast did, as the language of breaking news was something that hadn't previously been riffed on within horror films. And honestly, it's pretty scary. Check it out. Play with the rabbit ears. These reports, incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. First eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted those eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. However, the reports persisted. Medical examinations of some of the victims bore out the fact that they had been partially devoured. I think we have some late word of just arriving, and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. So, quick content warning for this next segment for mentions of rape, graphic violence, and animal cruelty. If any of that's a no-go for you, skip to 2159. Otherwise, enjoy, you sick freaks. Mondo Cane, Italian for A Doggish World, was a 1962 documentary about various shocking cultural practices from around the world that launched a new genre, the shockumentary, often referred to as Mondo movies. These movies simply contained a series of vignettes with little to no narrative, such as a woman breastfeeding a piglet or dogs being slaughtered for food. Unlike a true documentary, the intent isn't to educate, it's to provoke. As you can probably imagine, many of these Mondo films that are focused on non-Western cultures are wildly racist, misrepresentative, and ethnocentric. Later, I guess less racist iterations in the genre include the more infamous shock series Faces of Death and Traces of Death. Nearly 20 years after the release of Mondo Cane, Italian director Ruggiero Diodato was inspired by this shockumentary style of filmmaking, finding it a ripe opportunity for the horror genre. And so, in 1980, Diodato released one of the most controversial films of all time and the first proper found footage movie, Cannibal Holocaust. The name immediately grabs you with how sensational it is. The original title, The Green Inferno, was deemed not shocking enough. 
Of course, Eli Roth later used the name in his 2013 soft remake of the movie where, I don't know, a bunch of SJWs get owned in the rainforest for wanting it to get conserved or whatever. I'm kidding. But Roth has stated in interviews that he made it as a response to liberal Twitter activism and that whole mindset kind of makes me think he did not understand what the original movie was about, but I digress, the movie is not good. (laughs) Cannibal Holocaust follows a search into the Amazon rainforest for a crew of NYU students who traveled there to film a shockumentary in the style of Mondo Kane on the local indigenous tribes, the Yanamamo and the Shamatari, who, by the way, are real tribes, neither of which actually practice cannibalism, and whose communities were definitely harmed by their regressive depiction in Cannibal Holocaust. Anyway, both the film itself and the film within the film engage in the same egregious racism and focus on shock value that Mondo films are known for. In fact, Diodato specifically sought out Ritz Ortolani to compose the score for his film after being impressed with his work on Mondo Kane. And honestly, one of the best theme songs of all time. You should listen to it. As the search team, led by a professor of anthropology, unearths the footage of the crew that they've now discovered was murdered, they find that the filmmakers were just as, if not more, despicable and violent than the natives. Upon their return to New York, the professor shows the footage to the executives who originally intended to screen the documentary. They promptly decide that it must be destroyed. The last moments of the movie show the professor leaving the studio, lighting his pipe, and saying what are maybe my favorite final words of a horror movie. I wonder who the real cannibals are. With a small budget of $200,000, equivalent to about $400,000 now, about the budget of Napoleon Dynamite, Diodato was inspired by the cinema verite movement, a style of documentary filmmaking that places a heavier focus on the filmmaker in the presence of the camera, rather than just quiet observation. This led to him foregoing his typical steady cam and instead use a camera held on the shoulder along with shaky movements. And thus, the signature low-budget, shaky cam, handheld style of modern found footage was born. Considering that it's banned in 50 countries, Cannibal Holocaust is a family-friendly romp with something for everyone. Amputations, castration, cannibalism, obviously, a woman impaled on a pole from her ass to her mouth, rape, gang rape, more rape, people burning alive, bone thrones, an abortion, decapitation, and perhaps most famously, seven counts of real-life animal abuse. These include a kawadi killed with a knife, a tarantula and a boa constrictor chopped up with machetes, two squirrel monkeys decapitated so as to eat their brains, and a pig shot in the head at point-blank range. And finally, a tortoise gets decapitated, its limbs torn off, and all of its entrails removed. The turtle scene lasts for a gratuitous one minute and eight seconds, with lots of slimy close-ups and swelling music. It's difficult to watch, to say the least, and genuinely one of the more disturbing things I've seen. All of that to say, Cannibal Holocaust has earned its controversial reputation. Ten days after a successful premiere in Milan, the film was seized by the Italian courts under obscenity laws. Then the courts took it a step further, and completely convinced by the special effects in the film, charged Diodato with murdering four actors on camera. If convicted, he faced life in prison. Prior to filming the movie, he required his then mostly unknown American actors to sign a contract. The first clause stated that the actors were required to drop out of circulation for one year, disappear from the film world, have no contact with other producers, and they couldn't be involved in any other films or commercials. Diodato fully admits that he did this in the hopes it would lend the credibility of the film. Of course, he didn't expect to be put on trial for murder. Because all of the actors, save for a few, were across the globe and now contractually flying under the radar, it was difficult to track them down. 
but they were found relatively quickly. Further, the court was so convinced by the effect of the woman impaled on a stake that Diodato had to fully break down the effect, again, in court. It was accomplished by having the costume designer for the movie sit on a bicycle seat while balancing balsa wood in her mouth. She was then covered in blood. Diodato remarked that he was impressed she was able to stay so still. Thus, Diodato's name was cleared, for the murders at least. Still facing charges of obscenity, Diodato required a team of seven lawyers to defend him. Ultimately, he received a suspended sentence for four months, a $300 fine, and the film was permanently confiscated and banned from selling abroad. Of course, Diodato continued to sell copies of the film across the world illegally, and it became popular and very bannable internationally. In fact, it was the second highest grossing movie in Japan in 1983, right behind E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Great double feature there. But that illegal sale of Cannibal Holocaust in the United Kingdom ended up being so popular that it kicked off a nationwide moral panic about video nasties, which I'm going to take a moment to tell you about now. So the sudden proliferation of VCRs and home video in the early 80s caused a problem. Major studios didn't want viewers to watch their releases at home due to fears that it would hurt box office numbers. In fact, in a 1982 hearing on whether home video should be illegal, head of the MPAA, Jack Valenti, stated, quote, the VCR is to the American film producer as the Boston Strangler is to the woman home alone, end quote. Okay. With the major studios clearly not on board, People adapted, and the VHS market was flooded with whatever distributors could get their hands on for cheap. So softcore porn, indie films, and especially obscure horror and exploitation flicks, with some of the earliest bestsellers being I Spit on Your Grave and Sam Raimi's classic The Evil Dead. And because VHS rental was such an emergent market, there were almost no regulations on the content. Think of it like pre-Hays Code Hollywood, the anything-goes period in the 30s before the MPAA was established, where the new phenomenon of talking pictures could get away with sex, drugs, violence, swearing, and God forbid, strong female characters. In short, video cassettes were so new that people didn't even know they had pearls to clutch about it. And with no big Hollywood celebrities to hawk, distributors had to resort to promoting their movies by being as sensational as possible. Distributors like Go Video hacked together crude cover art of gore, demons, decapitated heads, heaving bosoms, and the like, along with titles like The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein and SS Experiment Camp. They advertised their tapes in the backs of magazines with much the same treatment. So when distributor Go Video got their hands on the rights to Cannibal Holocaust, they were stoked. What could be more attention-grabbing than a title like that? Of course, a lot of things. So to drum up some controversy, and thus media coverage, GoVideo decided to hit up infamous conservative activist and crusader against obscenity, Mary Whitehouse. They wrote an anonymous letter complaining about how disgusting this awful, despicable movie Cannibal Holocaust was, and they helpfully included a screener of the tape for Whitehouse's viewing pleasure. And the ploy worked. Just a little too well. Sure, the tapes were suddenly flying off shelves, but this exposure became the linchpin for the UK's campaign against so-called video nasties. Several years later, the cover art of the tape, featuring a heavy, quote-unquote, savage, eating human flesh, it would be used to prop up the Daily Mail's Ban the Sadist Videos campaign that ran with the headline, and this is real, quote, the rape of our children's minds, end quote. 
Parliament member Graham Bright even claimed, If anyone can stand up and defend the sort of horrific scenes that I have had to see and other members of Parliament have had to see, I believe they're living in a different world to that world that I live in. I believe that uh, research is taking place and it will show that these films not only affect young people, but I believe they affect adults as well. So be careful, kids. Don't let your dog catch you watching A Nightmare on Elm Street or they will come to you in the night and feast on your soft cartilages. For some political context here, in the years leading up to this controversy, the conservative Tory party came to power with the election of Margaret Thatcher. This ushered in an era of the tough law and order party and a return to traditional moral values. And by finding a moral issue to campaign against and stamp out, it would be proof in the pudding that the Tories meant business. In 1983, Thatcher used the campaign against video nasties as a kind of social reform to prop up her re-election campaign, and it ended up giving the Conservative Party the most decisive victory they'd seen since the Labour Parties in 1945. The video nasties became a scapegoat indicative of what the Conservative Party saw as the moral decline of the nation, the bad influence of Americanized media, and oh God, won't someone please think of the children and their delicate little eyes! It was a way to make a vague cultural anxiety into something tangible to attack and destroy. This led constabularies, especially the very Christian-aligned Greater Manchester Police, to raid video shops and seize any tapes that seemed obscene or suspicious. They were pretty indiscriminate about their choices and pulled anything that raised an eyebrow, once seizing a copy of Dolly Parton's musical The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and Sam Fuller's wartime drama The Big Red One, thinking that both were pornos. Because there seemed to be no rhyme or reason to these decisions, retailers asked for some form of warning about what content and titles were in violation of the rules. And so, the director of public prosecutions released the now infamous list of 72 films they believed to violate the Obscene Publications Act of 1959, as well as 82 other films that they probably couldn't prosecute, but that could still be confiscated under less severe charges. The DPP list of video nasties is an awesome watch list for any fan of horror. Along with Cannibal Holocaust, it includes a lot of really great stuff, like The Last House on the Left, Dario Argento's Tenebre, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Friday the 13th, The Hills Have Eyes, The Thing, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Extro, and probably my favorite movie ever, Possession, 1981. It's pretty telling that the list includes some of the most innovative and classic pieces of horror cinema. They were so inherently transgressive that the government felt the need to get rid of them. And that's art, baby. Pretty much all of these bans were later reversed, allowed to be released with cuts made or unable to be prosecuted. And that's the story of how the first found footage film about cannibals in the jungle led to a huge political overhaul in the United Kingdom. Isn't that wild? I'm someone who was once called a harvester of sorrow and am generally just an embarrassing edgelord. So I often go into overhyped controversial movies expecting to be underwhelmed. I went into Cannibal Holocaust with low expectations and I have to say, it's as disturbing as everyone says it is, full stop. It was made 40 years ago and it's still wildly upsetting with convincing effects that absolutely hold up. I recommend it as a piece of film history and if you're in the mood for something depraved, but if you're at all squeamish, I'd definitely stick to reading the Wikipedia plot synopsis for this one. You'll get the point. The next nine years were quiet on the found footage front until an American director named Dean Aliotto set out to make what he described as the war of the worlds on videotape. We'll be back after the break. Do you ever feel like you don't have enough teeth? Have a few too many dreams about all of them coming loose and crumbling out of your mouth while you're talking to your crush, and also you have to take a test that you haven't studied for even though you've been out of school for 20 years? 
Well, we have the product for you. Toothly is a premium subscription box that delivers fresh teeth directly to your doorstep on a monthly basis. Are they real? Are they fake? Who knows? That's what you're paying the premium for. It's all a part of the Toothly mystique. Now we know what you're thinking, but Leighton, why would I need more teeth than I already have? Well, first of all, don't sass me. Excess teeth have plenty of practical applications in our modern world. Need something more interesting than boring old rice to throw as the happy couple leave the chapel? Why not toss up a handful of teeth for a fun surprise? Did your kid lose a tooth? Why leave them with cold hard cash when you could leave them with some cold hard teeth instead? That'll put the fear of God in them. Listen, in these uncertain times, we have enough to be stressed out about. Anything that makes our lives easier right now is a welcome reprieve from the relentless terror of daily existence. And you know what makes life easier? Just a whole metric fuck ton of human teeth. So with promo code, Late Night and Deep Cuts listeners can get 32% off their order. In honor of the 32 teeth in the adult human mouth, of course. So be sure to hop on over to Toothly. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, my teeth. My teeth. Uh, I guess I need to renew my subscription to Toothly. The year was 1989. Ufologists across the country were baffled by a rare, mysterious videotape that was circulating through the community. Referred to as the McPherson tape, the 45 minutes of distorted home video depicted a children's birthday party interrupted by a power outage. Upon investigation, the family members come across a downed alien spaceship and capture footage of small gray aliens. The family is terrorized until their home is invaded and they're seemingly abducted. The tape ends. It became notorious enough that the short-lived paranormal investigation show Encounters the Hidden Truth covered it in a segment. It's easy to understand why people would enjoy hoaxing UFO encounters. What isn't easy to understand is the way they do it. Our UFO hoax hall of shame is full of cases in point, and we admit, even we were fooled. When I first ran across the tape, I was invited over to a friend's house who said he had a very interesting UFO abduction tape. Tom Dongo is a top UFO researcher and author based in Sedona, Arizona. He believed the tape was genuine. I was stunned, shocked by what I saw. I felt that the tape might be real because it, it fit in very well with so many uh, UFO alien incidences that I know of. It, it fit very well, in fact, almost too well. I thought no one could fake something like that. After spending three months checking with UFO researchers worldwide, Dongo was unable to find anyone else who had seen the video, and he was unable to locate another copy. It began to seem even more obvious to me that possibly it was an entirely authentic video, and someone, uh, namely possibly the government, was trying to uh, grab all the copies uh, that were out there. Funnily enough, Despite the director revealing that it was a found footage movie he made on a budget of $6,500 with the aliens played by little girls in masks, some UFO enthusiasts insisted it was part of a campaign of disinformation against the UFO disclosure movement. I have been studying UFOs for 42 years and I've got a pretty good track record. Retired U.S. Army Colonel Don Ware spent his career working closely with military intelligence. I thought that it did not have the appearance of being a scripted production because everybody was talking at the same time and you couldn't understand half of what they said. They gotta come through the house to find you, okay? But when that gives us time, they gotta come through the 
The people on camera did express a great deal of emotion. If they were actors, they ought to get an Oscar or an Emmy. While this does sound pretty ridiculous, people were so unfamiliar with the style of filmmaking at that time that they didn't have reason to believe it was a work of fiction. A bootleg copy of the original tape, which was mysteriously destroyed in a fire. Anyway, this bootleg copy was circulated without opening or closing credits, only further adding to the illusion. Ultimately, the movie is underwhelming and not really worth watching. However, a decade later and a year before Blair Witch, Alioto remade the film with a larger budget for the United Paramount Network, then renamed to Alien Abduction, Incident in Lake County. I actually recommend this one highly. It expands on the original story and has some wonderful creepy moments. It's one of the few horror movies I've seen that involves an entire group of people getting possessed. A little girl runs around with a shotgun. It's dope. And you would think that having a remake in the same style would clear up any misconceptions about the original tape, but it only exacerbated some people's belief that the previous McPherson tape was real. Maybe it was. Maybe this guy is onto something. But truth is in the eye of the beholder, and even though Dean Aliotto confessed, Tom Dongo has his doubts. There's really something inside me that really is not convinced that parts of it are not real. I really, I have a feeling that still, that parts of that video may be 100% authentic. Don Ware thinks Aliotto may have a secret agenda. I am not convinced the thing is a hoax because I know that our government policy is to insert disinformation into every major UFO case or release a document. On Halloween night, 1992, at 9 p.m., BBC One aired a live broadcast of a paranormal investigative team searching a North Holt home after reports of a spirit banging on the pipes. The program features an investigation into the early household, which has been plagued by strange sounds, poltergeist activity, and the presence of a ghost the young daughters have nicknamed Pipes. Hosting the program was iconic British talk show host Michael Parkinson, who provided a more skeptical view to the happenings of the supposedly haunted early household. On site with the early family was BBC's popular children's show presenter, Sarah Green. Her husband, Mike Smith, supervised the team of parapsychologists on deck to answer calls from the audience, who could dial the on-screen number to share their own encounters with ghosts. 11 million viewers, many of whom were children, tuned in for the live broadcast. But Ghostwatch wasn't live, and it wasn't real, either. Though the program was preceded by a warning that the following was a work of fiction, many viewers took the events of Ghostwatch at face value. Many have probably missed that warning in the first place and tuned in halfway through. It might be difficult to imagine in the age of social media, but at the time it caused a huge controversy that ultimately led to the death of a teenager. Essential to the verisimilitude of the broadcast is an understanding of why viewers accepted it as truth in the first place. The BBC in 1992 was a bastion of classy and impartial reporting and nearly universally viewed by the population of the UK. Even the writer of the program, Stephen Volk, acknowledges that the public trust in the BBC brand was essential to the effectiveness of the program. He says that had the special aired on Channel 4, for example, it would not have been nearly as effective. 
allow me to give a brief summary of what occurs in Ghost Watch. There's a certain jocular, skeptical tone to the beginning of the broadcast. The presenters play pranks on each other and joke around as they delve into the strange occurrences at the early home. The first 45 minutes are uneventful as the presenters try to puzzle out what could be causing the haunting. As the story progresses, things begin to unravel. Viewers call into the line to report sightings of Pipes the Ghost in the footage and poltergeist activity manifesting in their own homes. Sarah Green is dragged off screaming into the cupboard where Pipes, the child molester, supposedly lived. The program closes with the cops arriving at the early household and the cast fleeing the studio as Pipes wreaks havoc, exploding lights and ultimately possessing Michael Parkinson, who addresses the camera in the ghost's voice. This this camera's, but I don't know which one's working. I mean, there are no no cameramen. I mean, it's difficult to know even if anybody's still still with us, but if they are, this is the, the scene in this in this studio, this totally deserted studio. Autocue's working. Round and round the garden, like a teddy bear. important thing to note here, considering that this is an audio medium, is that Pipes, the fictional ghost, is genuinely frightening. Pipes has no eyes, a long black gown, a deformed face that, within the lore, had been eaten off by cats, hence the yowling from the clip, and a sordid history of being a notorious child molester who committed suicide at the early home due to demonic possession. He can often be spotted, unacknowledged, in the background of many shots in the special. The BBC had reservations about airing the program, debating internally whether they should pull it all together. They went forward, and soon their worst fears about the broadcast would be confirmed. The BBC and papers across the country were inundated with calls from outraged parents, condemning the broadcast for duping the public. Tabloids pounced on the opportunity to go after the BBC with claims of exploiting children and lying to the public. It was a disastrous embarrassment. The very real psychological effects of the broadcast on children only compounded the controversy. Two cases of 10-year-old boys being diagnosed with PTSD in the wake of the broadcast are recorded, with one reporting distressing symptoms of, quote, banging his head to remove the thoughts of ghosts, end quote, that required him to be committed to an inpatient unit for eight weeks. These were the first ever recorded cases of a television program causing PTSD, with several other cases purportedly caused by Ghostwatch cropping up in the years to come. Children weren't the only ones affected. Adult viewers reported sleeping with the lights on. One viewer who was 25 years old at the time says, quote, I felt literally sick with fear, standing in the corner of the room, peeking out between my fingers, thinking, all my life I wanted to see a ghost, and now there's one on the fucking TV. Two thoughts raced around my head. Was it only me who was seeing this? And worse, could Pipes see me? End quote. But this was far from the worst of it. For days after the broadcast, Martin Denham, a neurodivergent 18-year-old factory worker with a mental age of 13, was obsessed with Pipes the Ghost. He became terrified of the noisy pipes in his own home. On November 5th, five days after the broadcast, Denham hanged himself from a tree. The suicide note found in his pocket simply read, Mother, do not be upset. If there is ghosts, I will now be one, and I will always be with you as one. Love, Martin.
Of course, Martin's mother blamed the BBC for her son's death. Denham's parents worked with the Broadcasting Standards Commission to scrutinize the BBC's approach to airing such disturbing content. The BSC ruled that the broadcast was wildly irresponsible and forced the BBC to issue a formal apology. The power of Ghostwatch lies in how it was presented, through live television. As philosopher Martin McLuhan posits, the medium is the message. Had the special been presented explicitly as fiction or, say, released on DVD, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it 30 years later. So many of the most effective elements of the program boil down to exploiting the way we interact with the language of broadcast television, such as the call-in line, the suggestion that the live viewing audience had created a national seance, and the clever gaslighting of the viewer by repeatedly showing the ghost in backgrounds of shots and then replaying the footage without him there. Truthfully, it's a brilliant production that feels vastly ahead of its time. For those interested in checking it out for themselves, it's available to watch for free on archive.org. I can't recommend it enough. Ghostwatch was aired on the BBC just once and never again on British television due to it being promptly banned for a decade. This, of course, backfired because parents of anxiety-stricken children couldn't rewind the show to prove to their children the events weren't real. Those who worked on the program struggled through the backlash, particularly with the death of Martin Denham. Touching the similar instigating social issues that have inspired horror media for decades, the creators of the program cite the footage of the Iraq and Gulf Wars being presented on the news as detached tales of heroism and spectacle as being the inspiration for Ghostwatch. The producers even took advantage of versioning infrared camera technology viewers were used to seeing exclusively in Gulf War coverage to add tension to the climax. Ruth Baumgarten, a producer of the show, stated in regards to the war footage, quote, I thought, how real is this? How much does what we want to see manufacture what is made? The denouement of Ghost Watch is, there is a collective wish to see this, end quote, and this being complete chaos and violence. Yet again, found footage as a medium gets to the core of the voyeuristic nature of the horror genre. Though potentially unbelievable and surely impossible to fully replicate in the age of social media, Ghostwatch represents a bygone era of horror filmmaking that directly influenced the found footage movies to come. Thus far, we've talked about aliens, cannibalism, more aliens, and corrupting our poor dogs with horror, so now feels like a good spot to wrap up before we get into the meat of this story. Tune in next time for more behind-the-scenes stories of lesser-known found footage movies and a very, very deep dive into the production history and cultural ramifications of The Blair Witch Project. So, Jesus, what was that? Oh, okay. <laughs> it was my dog. Maybe. Anyway, bye everyone, and thanks for joining me on this episode of Deep Cuts. See you next time. This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain, either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. 
Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time. To us, anyway. Yet legend tells a different story. One whose evidence is all around us. Etched in stone. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Deep Cuts, a horror history podcast brought to you by Late Night with Brian Wecht. I'd like to begin this episode by posing a question. Is there such a thing as truth on the internet? In this era of fake news, Facebook propaganda, and rampant conspiracy theories, can we really accept anything at face value anymore? And do we even want to? The internet has eliminated our sense of mystery. You have any information you could possibly want right in your pocket. What song is that? Who the hell is that character actor whose name I don't remember? How can I do my makeup without looking like a clown? How can I do my makeup to purposefully look like a clown? In a lot of ways, this is obviously great, but it's robbed us of this sense of wonder and of intrigue. It forces us to always be on our guard and to approach everything with skepticism. And this is obviously problematic for a subgenre predicated on the suspension of disbelief in the viewer wholeheartedly buying into the bit. So things are different now, and that's okay. But what's interesting to me is the landscape of truth on the internet in an era where things were shiny and new. When you could find like-minded people under a veil of anonymity in specific communities and share that wonder together. When the story of missing kids in the woods planted a seed of doubt and allowed your mind to wander. What if there really are strange forces in this world that we'll never understand? Last time we talked about Cannibal Holocaust, Ghost Watch, and old women kissing Satan's ass. So, you know, the height of cinema. I'm glad you're joining me again for the continuation of our journey through the history of found footage. Today, we're going to cover some more interesting stepping stones leading up to a deep dive into the most infamous found footage movie of all time, The Blair Witch Project. I'm your host, Leighton Gray, and this is Deep Cuts. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. of that day to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. They're coming to get you, Barbara. What's your favorite scary movie? In 1992, around the same time as Ghost Watch, Belgian director trio Remy Belvaux, André Bonzel, and Benoit Polivord set out to make a pitch-black comedy horror mockumentary on the smallest budget possible, opting to shoot in black and white and often running out of film requiring the financial help of friends and family. The original French title, that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, roughly translates into English as It Happened in Your Neighborhood. Now it's known simply as Man Bites Dog. The movie follows the exploits of a charismatic serial killer whose murders are documented by an increasingly complicit crew of documentarians. Though not the progenitor of the charming, sophisticated killer trope, we can thank Shadow of a Doubt, Silence of the Lambs, Dial M for Murder, The 1988 Vanishing, which along with Possession is probably my favorite movie ever, and many others for that. Man Bites Dog is a great entry in the canon. Remy Belvaux gives a delightful performance that carries the film, and part of the reason it feels so natural is because he convinced his friends and family that he was just filming home videos, not an NC-17-rated movie about him being a serial killer. 
Spoiler alert, in the film, he ends up in prison and is visited by his mother, who did not know this was part of a movie. Her tearful, distraught reaction is genuine. Man Bites Dog clearly inspired a generation of found footage that aims to just follow a serial killer around. Most notably, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, The Poughkeepsie Tapes, Creep 1 and 2, and Be My Cat, a film for Anne. As we get closer to the release of The Blair Witch Project, we get the honestly pretty mediocre The Last Broadcast, which people often falsely cite as the inspiration for Blair Witch. The timelines don't match up, and Blair Witch was well into production long before Last Broadcast came out. The Last Broadcast is a mockumentary about a bunch of kids venturing into the Pine Barrens to find the Jersey Devil, and then they all get killed. It's slow, boring, jarringly breaks out of found footage at the end for no reason and has one of the most whack and unearned horror movie endings ever. Also, it's not even about the Jersey Devil. Plot twist. The documentarian is the murderer. The Jersey Devil doesn't exist. It's like a movie where the Jersey Devil skips on over to Wawa to buy tasty cakes would be way better than this. And then there was this ripple of controversy in the wake of Blair Witch with erroneous reports that the filmmakers of Last Broadcast were pursuing litigation against Tixon films in regards to stealing their ideas. None of that is true. It's just a good example of parallel thinking, a thing that happens way more than people think it does. So despite my clear disdain, I have to give this movie some credit as it is officially the first movie ever created with entirely consumer-grade equipment. Let's listen to this extremely charming local news story on the matter. Hi, welcome to Cover to Cover for April 1998. I'm Lee Wolf, and I'm coming to you tonight from the digital desktop, the realm where video and computers collide and make much of the magic we see on TV and in the movies. A new era in filmmaking is about to be released to the world. Two filmmakers have recently achieved a cinematic first. The first high-quality feature film produced entirely on the desktop PC. This exciting innovation didn't take place in Hollywood, New York, or Europe. It happened in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Meet Stefan Avalos and Lance Weiler, the first desktop filmmakers. So uh, Lance and I actually were hanging out one night, quite literally, and we said, hey, let's make a movie. Let's see if we can make a movie that costs no money to make. Classically, movies have been using computers now for, I'd say, 20 years in terms of using them a lot and not just as a novelty. Well, those computers used to cost $80,000, $100,000, a million dollars. So when we, when we call this a desktop consumer type movie, this is a movie that uh, someone could go out to a store, buy the computer, buy the software, and make the movie. That's what we did. Uh, and because of that, it was really, you know, very cost effective. Even before the completion of the last broadcast, the future implications of this desktop film were enough to garnish national and international attention. The film is... Uh taken us all over the place, you know, I mean, what started out as a little $900 thing is, has been like a ticket to multiple places around the world. The web has really played an important part in the, in the film, you know, there's a character in the story. We uh, use the internet as a part of the uh, story. It's, uh, it plays uh, quite a large part in the story. And also we used it to start telling people about what we were doing. People could go to the website that we built and uh, they could check out the behind the scenes, the storyline, um, the aftermath of what has happened with the movie, and so on. So it's been an invaluable tool. The last broadcast made its world premiere at Doylestown's County Theater. Little known, the most who saw the film during its week-long run was the place in movie history that was carved here, for it marked the first time in the United States that a feature film was projected digitally to a movie-going audience. In the future, some may look back on the last broadcast as they do the first talkie, 
or the first color film, as an early pioneer that defined a whole new way to make movies. And I think that's the ultimate irony in this, is that we're not in Hollywood, and that is what the new Hollywood is going to be. People, it doesn't matter where you are, you know, where, if you want to make a movie, you'll be able to do it. If you're out in the middle of a cornfield, in the middle of Iowa, you'll be able to make a movie. That is the new Hollywood. Oh, whatever. I don't much care for a movie that promises me the Jersey Devil and then does not give me the Jersey Devil. Like, the Mothman prophecy sucks, but at least Mothman has phone sex with Richard Gere. I was really drunk when I watched that movie, but I'm positive that's exactly what happens. Don't fact check me on that. Anyway, moving on. Another little non-found footage stepping stone here is Hideo Nakata's 1998 horror movie Ringu, later remade by Gore Verbinski in 2004, is The Ring. Though not entirely found footage, the cursed avant-garde style videotape in the movie has definitely influenced the aesthetics of the genre. It also introduced to the mainstream this now done-to-death image of a ghostly woman with stringy black hair and a long white gown. Ringu remains Japan's highest-grossing horror movie to this day. And as a sidebar... Due to The Ring becoming one of the most profitable American remakes of a foreign movie, it also directly led to the movement of shitty American remakes of J and K horror, which really boils my beats. An essential part of why Japanese and other Eastern horror films are so effective and unique is the rich lore that they draw from, especially the Shinto religion and the folktale-based Kwaidan legends. When they're remade in America, studios either butcher or ignore the original folklore that the stories are based on and lose much of their impact. Learn to read subtitles and discover the rich world of foreign cinema, you cowards. Anyway, Ringu introduced the idea of ancient ghosts using the medium and language of technology to haunt us in the modern era, which, with the timing of its release, hits Y2K anxieties later exemplified in movies like Pulse, Megan is Missing, and Unfriended. All right, after God knows how long of a buildup, it's time to talk about the big one, The Blair Witch Project. Now, by this point, I assume we've all heard the stories about starving and tired kids in the woods getting terrorized by the directors of the movie. But there's a lot more to it than that, and I hope that you find this tale as interesting as I do. The Blair Witch Project is often written off now as being boring or a scourge on this earth for what it did to the horror genre, but I want to give it some love here because it is, and this is potentially a hot take even though I am correct, a fucking masterpiece. And the story that's overlooked here is one of sheer ingenuity, passion, and determination, and one I find extremely creatively inspiring. Why did it take decades of found footage predecessors for the subgenre to take off? What made The Blair Witch Project so special? The Blair Witch Project hit the cultural consciousness at just the right time. While we've already covered several prior found footage productions, it's worth noting that most of these were non-American productions and none of them had the key element that cemented Blair Witch into the annals of horror history for good, the viral marketing campaign that invented viral marketing as we know it today. The idea for the Blair Witch Project originated in 1996. It all started with a tall tale. In 1996, producer Greg Hale approached his friend Ben Rock to tell him something interesting. He spun the yarn of the Blair Witch legend and the documentary crew that disappeared in the woods. Hale excitedly shared that he and his crew were going to analyze their recovered footage. Rock had no reason to believe this wasn't 100% true. He says, quote, 
All I wanted was to see that footage and to know what was on it, end quote. So of course, Hale then told him that everything he had just said was made up. The story was just believable enough and Rock was fascinated. Hale went on to tell him that he and the directors, Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Murick, were working on making this footage a reality and Rock begged to be a part of the project. There was absolutely zero budget. It wasn't expected to really go anywhere beyond some small festivals, but everyone was so stoked to be involved that they jumped at the chance. At this point, they were unsure if this thing would ever get made, but moved forward, fueled by their passion for the project. Something this story shows us is that the filmmakers were considering the marketing angle from the inception of the project, which, in my experience, is what makes a piece of media organically shareable. Slightly shameful plug, but if you're interested in hearing me talk about more spreadable content theory, you can listen to my GDC talks on YouTube. Anyway, the first step for the Blair Witch team was creating a sizzle reel, essentially a trailer for the final product to communicate the ideas and tone. By chopping together some narration and clips from, as you'll recall, Hicks on Witchcraft Through the Ages, the team had their quote-unquote witch pitch. The new production company even went so far as to dub their newly founded studio Hicks on Films. After getting the sizzle reel in the hands of the producer and host of IFC's Split Screen, a showcase for independent filmmaking that thrust many later-to-be-huge indie filmmakers into the limelight, the short aired on basic cable. The small fee IFC paid the crew for the short, as well as a fee from another short they produced, according to Rock, comprised most of the film's shooting budget, which is estimated to be about $25,000, a significant portion of which was later spent on marketing. The casting process took a full year. Seeing as the movie revolved around following and terrorizing three kids who would be filming themselves and improvising off of no script, directors Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Murick had to be picky. They needed someone who understood the heart of what they were doing in the project, someone who could think on their feet, and also literally stay on their feet through days of grueling hiking and camping. As the notice posted in the stairway of the building where the auditions were held read, You are about to read for the most demanding and unpleasant project of your career. If you are cast, we're going to drag you into the woods for seven days of hell. 168 hours of real-time improvisational torment. We're not kidding. So if you're not serious about your craft, then you're wasting your time in ours. The moment the actors came into the auditions for what was then called the Black Hills Project, Sanchez and Merrick started grilling them. As soon as they entered the room, the audition began. Some rolled with it, others clearly didn't understand. When a young and enthusiastic founder of an improv company entered the room, Sanchez asked her, you have served half of your sentence for killing your baby. Why should we let you out? Heather Donahue, the future star of the film, simply answered, I don't think you should. With the cast finally in place, in 1997, Merrick and Sanchez finally gathered their small but enthusiastic production crew and traveled to one of their girlfriends' packed condo in Maryland to begin shooting in earnest. The movie was famously improvised, the actors only being directed to GPS waypoints where they'd drop the day's footage, receive information on where to go next, and the general beats they needed to hit. This, however, required a lot of preparation on the part of the filmmakers. A few members of the crew were tasked with redressing the iconic three-story house in the climax, which was not a built set and instead was a real abandoned house they found, as there was clear evidence that homeless people had been living there. Meanwhile, the directors needed to first scout Seneca State Park in Gaithersburg, Maryland, where the whole thing was filmed, uh, only the first scene was actually filmed in Blair, and set dress as needed with stacks of rocks and the iconic stickmen scattered through the woods. Which, another fun fact, Benrock came up with the stickman idea because they didn't have the budget to do anything else creepy, and they were like, all right, sticks are free. So anyway, this part of pre-production took three painstaking weeks for a shoot that ended up taking eight days. To quote Benrock, 
We weren't creating a movie which was figured out before we started. We were creating a massive funhouse to be discovered and documented by people who didn't know what they were supposed to find. While the filmmakers cited Cannibal Holocaust, Hickson, and Man Bites Dog as inspiration for the shoot, the most formative movie for the filmmakers was actually Christopher Guest's 1996 comedy mockumentary, Waiting for Guffman, because they couldn't actually get their hands on VHS tapes for the other ones. It was a simpler time. Decked out in camouflage, ski masks, and headlamps with red gels on them so as not to be seen, the directors followed the actors at a distance, staying just out of sight as they terrorized them. They carried walkie-talkies just in case for safety reasons. As producer Greg Hale told the actors prior to filming, quote, we're very concerned about your safety, just not your comfort, end quote. Of course, on the one occasion that the actors needed to walk in for help due to a torrential downpour, the batteries had died and the crew missed their call. The actors had to walk to a nearby house, drenched and exhausted, and call them on a landline. This was the most danger the actors were ever in. But being kept awake by the crew slapping trees with branches and playing pre-recorded screams and sounds of children laughing was taking a toll. On the last day, Halloween of 1997, they were each given one water bottle and one microwave burrito to last them until nightfall. How are they supposed to microwave the burrito? I, it escapes me. I don't know. They're troopers. Good for them. By the end of the shoot, the actors were completely over it and ready to go home, especially to go shower. And with the final scene in the foreboding house in the woods shot, the production wrapped. Nobody knew the significance of what they had just accomplished. And now for a word from our sponsors. Hey there, folks. It's, uh, it's Leighton here from Leighton Night. So I've got good news and I've got bad news, and I'm going to start with the bad news. For those listeners who took advantage of our special offer in the last episode for the Toothly subscription box, we have a legal obligation to inform you of the developments of the past few weeks. Uh, Toothly is unfortunately currently under investigation for unethical business practices in relation to the sourcing of their product. The evidence thus far uh, points to the business operating as a cover for the disposal of human remains. So if you're in possession of any teeth supplied by Toothly, uh, you'll need to return them as soon as possible as all teeth are now considered evidence in the upcoming trial or else you could be charged with obstruction of justice. But don't worry, here's the good news. If you or a loved one purchased any human remains from Toothly, you may be entitled to financial compensation. We here at Late Night are proud to partner with the criminal law offices of Dixon and Dicklesby to make this process smoother. Call 916-900-2644 now for free legal consultation. That's 916-900-2644. And remember, the legal process doesn't have to feel like pulling teeth. All it takes is getting dick. Son and Dicklesby. While the seemingly endless hours of footage were being edited down to feature length, the filmmakers submitted their second segment for IFC Split Screen, this time including some of what they shot in Seneca State Park. After this special aired, people took to what was, at the time, an exciting new realm, the World Wide Web, to discuss the veracity of the tapes on message boards like grainypictures.com. In fact, there was so much discussion that it was overloading the servers. The webmaster gently suggested to the Hickson crew that they start their own website dedicated to the legend. In May of 1998, www.blairwitch.com launched, 
which it's still up to this day if you want to check it out. Fans flocked to it, and Hexon Films was inundated with emails and requests for more information. The website used fake vintage photos the filmmakers staged, written legend, fake crime scene photos, pleas for information on the missing kids, and excerpts from Heather's journal. It's entirely convincing and was launched at a time pre-social media, pre-fake news, so it was more difficult to verify information found online. Instead of directly advertising a film, this grassroots approach formed a community of people who were invested in the case before it was even clear it was to be a feature film. There were over 20 million page views. The original plan for the movie was to use the footage we see in the final film as a base to build the rest of the movie out, true crime documentary style. There were to be interviews, in-world analysis, talking heads with friends and family to add a sense of realism, but they were out of money. They needed to find a way to make the original footage work on its own merit. The first screening was met with disinterest and complaints about the length. The second screening, after much more aggressive cuts to a class of film students and an advertising executive, all seemed to have the same reaction. This fucking sucks. This marked the first time the filmmakers felt truly discouraged about the project. What if the found footage concept didn't work after all? With this feedback in mind, the final cut whittled it down to a tight 87 minutes. This is the cut that, against all odds, made it into Sundance. Someone made a VHS copy of the screener that began to spread like wildfire, people passing along bootleg upon bootleg of this mysterious tape, fully believing it was real. In the wake of Sundance, Artisan Entertainment promptly bought the rights to the film for $1 million. From there, it became wildly successful. Lines snaking down blocks for early screenings, serious coverage in magazines and the news. This no-budget found footage project shot in the freezing woods by a group of film school friends worked. But the understated ending, at least in the eyes of Artisan Entertainment, didn't. They paid the filmmakers to return to Seneca State Park over a year after the original shoot to film four alternate endings where Mike is discovered, which are Mike hanging by the neck, Mike crucified on a giant stickman figure with stickmen dangling around him, Mike floating in the air, and Mike just facing the camera, seemingly in a trance. Though warned that keeping the original ending would likely mean the film would lose millions of dollars, the directors stuck to their guns, and rightfully so. Many viewers seem to miss the significance of Mike just facing the wall because it's explained by a brief blurb at the beginning of the film, which is easy to forget. But within the context of the Blair Witch legend, it makes more sense. The children that supposedly died in the house were murdered and disemboweled by Blair resident Rustin Parr in the 40s, who reported being haunted by a mysterious specter of an old woman who demanded he murder the seven children. He allowed one to live, but forced him to stand facing the corner and listen to the screams of the dying children. Hence, the iconic ending of the Blair Witch Project. So Blair Witch, though inspired by Cannibal Holocaust, takes this polar opposite creative tact in regards to shock value. Cannibal Holocaust is disturbing because director Ruggiero Diodato's creative ethos is to show everything. Blood, guts, murder, and gratuitous close-ups. On the other hand, Sanchez and Mirak's Blair Witch has such staying power because the witch has only ever suggested. By taking the approach of showing nothing while ramping up the tension until it's excruciating, it allows the audience to build the monster themselves. And what could be scarier than your own imagination? The idea flew in the face of what people expected from the horror genre at the time, hot on the heels of the gory slasher franchises of the 80s. To be artsy and understated at this point was genuinely transgressive. Two months before the film's wide release in July of 1999, Artisan Entertainment worked with the Sci-Fi Channel to produce a short TV special called The Curse of the Blair Witch. Wedged between the typical late 90s daytime TV specials on Bigfoot and episodes of Forensic Files, 
The special contains unused talking head footage with experts and family members from the scrapped portions of the Blair Witch Project, actual footage from the film, all interspersed with the typical Ken Burns zooms on fake historic documents. It's genuinely compelling and worth the watch. It perfectly nails the kind of vibe and tone these specials have and very smartly focuses on the legend rather than exclusively being about the discovered footage. The Curse of the Blair Witch became one of the most viewed sci-fi shows of the summer, leading to repeated reruns in the months leading to the film's release. On July 19, 1999, The Blair Witch opened nationwide to 27 theaters, competing with Stanley Kubrick's intimidating Eyes Wide Shut, released on the same day. But the response and ticket movement was so immediate and profitable that within weeks, Artisan had extended the release into 1,101 theaters across the country, which at the time was the distributor's most widespread release. It was successful beyond their wildest dreams, landing the actors' guest spots on The Daily Show, Jay Leno, and on the covers of Newsweek and Time within days of each other. It was referenced on The Simpsons and parodied on countless other shows to this day. SNL, even in lieu of a sketch dedicated to the film, shot a message from Tim Meadows and Lorne Michaels where they explained that they simply refused to do yet another Blair Witch parody because everyone was so sick of them. Of course, this devolves into a Blair Witch parody. And who can forget the classic moment from The Office seven years later? It reminds me of the orientation video Michael showed on my first day, the Scranton Witch Project. I am so scared when people don't label their personal food. In short, it was a cultural phenomenon. And as with any massive success of something unique and interesting that flirts with the illusory nature of truth on film, people fucking hated it. Considering the widespread and ferocious hype building up to the release with people touting it as the scariest horror movie ever, it's no wonder a large portion of the mainstream viewing audience was disappointed. People felt tricked. Heather Donahue even won the Razzie for Worst Actress that year. After all, there isn't anything more to the movie than annoying kids screaming in the woods, terrified by piles of rocks, right? And it just ends with a dude standing in a corner? How could that possibly be scary? Even the sleepy town of Burkittsville, Maryland capitalized on the hype. The main street of the town turned into a cottage industry catering to tourists, hawking homemade stickmen, witch hunting kits, and witch-related hiking tours. Of course, this influx of Blair Witch tourism prompted local pearl clutchers to decry the film, almost cancel Halloween trick-or-treating due to the presence of so many Blair Witch fans, and even going so far as to hold a prayer service to, quote, try to take back what Satan is trying to destroy. Here's a recent news report talking about the response of actual Blair residents. In case you haven't heard over the last two decades, the Blair Witch is not real. The movie is based on a fictional urban legend, but missing posters used to promote the movie back in 1999 had a lot of moviegoers thinking the witch was real and that Burkittsville, Maryland was home to an evil presence. This sentence in the opening line of the Blair Witch Project is partially true. This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town. Burkittsville was never known as Blair, but the Maryland village does exist. In 1999, people flocked to the town not to hear about Civil War history, but to find out if the Blair Witch was real. Saturday night, you'd think that we were a big town instead of a crossroads because there was all kinds of traffic going by. There were people that were removing dirt from the cemetery and selling it online. And that really, it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Because the actors had just been touted to the whole world as being dead, even their IMDb pages having been updated to say so, they faced backlash in their personal lives. 
People called their parents, asking if their children were really dead. People sent sympathy cards to Heather Donahue's mother. She's later stated in interviews that people would come up to her in the street and tell her that they wish she was dead and that they wanted their money back. And speaking of Heather, she continued her acting career in the wake of Blair Witch, one of the highlights of which was a role in the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, Charlie Gets an Abortion. I'm real glad you decided to do this, Charlie. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's the least I could do, so. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm a lot of time. I'm gonna get to work. Uh, Tommy, come on in here, son. What do you want, Mom? He's a bit of a handful. Uh, Charlie and his friend are here. What do want? Tommy, come in here, please. This is bullshit. Whoa. Whoa. Language, please. Hey. Which one are you supposed to be my dad? Whoa, hello, right off the bat with the... <laughs> Tommy, be nice. But even better than this is that in 2008, she retired from acting to start growing medical marijuana and later wrote her 2012 memoir, Grow Girl, about her experiences. I knew after a while that I didn't want to be an actress anymore. I wasn't getting to do things that I was very proud of putting out into the world. I was very open to whatever was going to come next. Growing marijuana is an interesting job because it, it has so many different aspects to it. The actual growing, the actual contact with the girls, the plants, was amazing to me. Um, and there was nothing like the girls. It, it became really obvious to me why we have this long, intricate, and sometimes dangerous relationship with this plant. It's a, it's a total force of nature. Good for her. Anyway. Following the gangbuster success of Blair Witch, Artisan jumped at the chance to keep the cash cow going. But all the original crew of Blair Witch had moved on to bigger and better things, like growing marijuana. So they continued to churn out merchandise, toys, three video games, five books, and an eight-entry-long series of young adult tie-in novels, all without the involvement of people who made Blair Witch so incredible in the first place. Almost immediately after the success of the original film, Artisan greenlit and produced the financially successful but massively critically panned disaster of a sequel that eschewed the found footage element entirely, Blair Witch 2, The Book of Shadows, directed by Paradise Lost's Joe Berlinger. Last summer, after the crowds left, five strangers returned to the woods to uncover the truth. But one of them has a secret that will unlock the curse. You know, if you don't believe in the Blair Witch, then why the hell did you bother to come? I thought the movie was cool. I recommend getting drunk and watching it with friends. It's pretty terrible in a fun way. And then 15 years later, still trying to bank off the success of the first and erase the bad taste left by Book of Shadows, there was Adam Wingard's 2016 Blair Witch, which is essentially a rehash of the original, but that actually shows Blair Witch, which sucks a lot of the intrigue out of the story. But there are drones, I guess. Cool. Modern. It's what the kids like. Drones. <sighs> All of this to say, the Blair Witch Project, whether you love it or hate it, changed the industry forever. A linchpin of its success was how it harnessed grassroots community mobilizing and transmedia marketing through TV specials and the website to create excitement. So you might be familiar with the concept of ARGs, which stands for alternate reality games, which are a form of transmedia storytelling that require the player to use real-world mediums and resources to solve puzzles and unravel the story. The Blair Witch Project's ARG is very notable, and considering we'll later talk about the ARGs it inspired, I want to break down its origins a bit before we move on. And listen, I know, I know. Mom, you're always trying to tell me about transmedia esoterica. 
What is it with you? I just think they're neat. So it's difficult to track the history of ARGs, considering creators have flirted with the idea in various forms for a very long time. That said, the first true inkling of alternate reality games was predicted in 1905 by mystery writer G.K. Chesterton's short story anthology, The Club of Queer Trades. In this instance, queer meaning peculiar. The through line of these stories is that they all circle back around to the titular club of queer trades, an organization you can only join by inventing a novel new way of making money. For example, a service where you can hire a guy to follow you around at parties and act dumb for the express purpose of you being able to dunk on him and look cool to your friends. One story in particular, The Tremendous Adventures of Major Brown, revolves around a private detective attempting to solve a baffling crime, only to discover that it was all an elaborate game put on by a secret organization for another man of the same name. Let's listen to this bit from the climax, which I actually think articulates the appeal of ARGs remarkably well. Major, said he. Did you ever, as you walked along the empty street upon some idle afternoon, feel the utter hunger for something to happen? Something, in the splendid words of Walt Whitman, something pernicious and dread, something far removed from a puny and pious life, something unproved, something in a trance, something loosed from its anchorage and driving free. Did you ever feel that? Certainly not, said the Major shortly. Then I must explain with more elaboration, said Mr. Northover with a sigh. The adventure and romance agency has been started to meet a great modern desire. On every side, in conversation and in literature, we hear of the desire for a larger theater of events, for something to waylay us and lead us splendidly astray. Now, the man who feels the desire for a varied life pays a yearly or quarterly sum to the adventure and romance agency. In return, the adventure and romance agency undertakes to surround him with startling and weird events. As a man is leaving his front door, an excited sweep approaches him and assures him of a plot against his life. He gets into a cab and is driven to an opium den. He receives a mysterious telegram or a dramatic visit and is immediately in a vortex of incidents. A very picturesque and moving story is first written by one of the staff of distinguished novelists who are at present hard at work in the adjoining room. Yours, Major Brown, designed by our Mr. Grigsby, I consider peculiarly forcible and pointed. It is almost a pity you did not see the end of it. I need scarcely explain further the monstrous mistake. Your predecessor in your present house, Mr. Gurney Brown, was a subscriber to our agency and our foolish clerks, ignoring alike the dignity of the hyphen and the glory of military rank, positively imagined that Major Brown and Mr. Gurney Brown were the same person. Thus you were suddenly hurled into the middle of another man's story. If you've seen David Fincher's thriller, The Game, starring Michael Douglas, it's the same idea. So this concept of a sprawling alternate reality game dates back to this story from 1905. From there, we can see bits and pieces sprinkled through the 20th century in the form of novels, TV specials, and the live-action role-playing community especially, otherwise known as LARPing. But what made the Blair Witch Project ARG so different was this. It landed at the exact right moment on the internet, 1999. The days of GeoCities and Usenet, before social media, smartphones, and when the internet felt like a geographical place as opposed to this shitty cling wrap digital layer over reality. It was the wild, wild west, where people finding some weird website describing a genuine mystery felt like a true discovery. People got to be a part of something and participate in unraveling a story with people from across the world in a new and exciting way. In 2001, Microsoft developed what is widely considered the first truly build intentional ARG, a game called The Beast, created as a tie-in for the movie AI Artificial Intelligence. But Harry Knowles, creator of Ain't It Cool News and the first to break the story on the Beast's ARG, has stated that while the Beast ARG was influential, 
It was an interesting game that built up to a movie that was a flop both financially and critically, leaving players disappointed. Whereas The Blair Witch Project delivered a movie just as interesting and cohesive as the ARG. And that's where Blair Witch's staying power comes from. It's relatable, grounded, and the mythos leaves just enough unanswered to allow the viewer to fill in the blanks with their own fears and theories. It's an exercise in collaborative imagination, and the same applies to a well-crafted ARG. Both The Blair Witch Project and, to a lesser extent, The Beast, served as springboards for future successful viral marketing campaigns such as Cloverfield's Slusho ARG, which we'll get back to in a moment. But the thing is, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, by 2020, we've become oversaturated with them. We know the beats. The internet has fully adopted the language of late-stage capitalism, and thus, the endless ARGs we see now have gotten progressively more craven about solely existing to hawk shit at you. And with the sheer speed and scale at which the internet moves, ARGs just don't have the kind of teeth they used to in the quiet world of 1999's internet. The idea of people freaking out together on Usenet over some creepy recovered VHS tapes at this point sounds downright quaint. I can imagine it now. The Blair Witch Project ended up grossing $250 million worldwide, making it the most profitable independent film ever. That is, until almost a decade later, when one director turned a little $15,000 paranormal found footage film shot in his own home into $193.4 million at the box office, making it the most profitable film ever made, independent or otherwise. Of course, I'm talking about Oren Pelly's 2009 film Paranormal Activity, but we'll revisit that in the next episode. So I'm going to take a little sidebar here to talk in detail about a lesser-known 2007 found footage movie because I'm terribly biased and it's one of my favorites, The Poughkeepsie Tapes. It's a mockumentary-style film, not dissimilar to the format used in the last broadcast, just better, following the story of a serial killer with a flair for the dramatic who taped all of his murders. It straddles the line between being a cheesy homage to the slew of early 2000s true crime docuseries such as Forensic Files and being an upsetting nearly neo-extremism snuff film narrative. It nails the aesthetic, and it's worth taking a sidebar to explore where that distinctive true crime documentary style comes from, considering the filmmakers have stated that their inspiration comes directly from Man Bites Dog in The Thin Blue Line, and that the later Australian diet horror found footage film Lake Mungo takes the same tact. Also, it's interesting, and I'm going to force you to listen to me talk about it. I'm sorry. Errol Morris's 1988 documentary, The Thin Blue Line, follows the story of Randall Dale Adams, who was wrongly convicted of killing a Dallas police officer in 1976. It introduced the world to true crime tales conveyed through talking head interviews with experts and those involved, as well as dramatic reenactments of the crimes. The documentary is so effective that it led to Randall Dale Adams's case being reopened, and he was cleared of charges in 1989. As is now standard in, and I hate this term very much, prestige true crime documentaries, it's particularly unsettling due to the interviewees staring directly into the camera as they speak. This was achieved through Morris's precursor to his later inventive shooting technique that he dubbed the Interotron. The effect is achieved as follows. The interviewer is seated in front of the camera, which is rigged with a two-way mirror. 
This is how most teleprompters work. But in this instance, it acts as a monitor, so the subject is staring directly at a reflected video feed of the director, who sits off to the side with an identical setup. This way, the camera is able to capture a clear feed of the subject while also allowing the director and interviewee to speak face-to-face through the mirrored glass. Anyway, the Poughkeepsie tapes was very faithful to this vibe. Director John Eric Dowdle has described the production process as being driven by the idea of, quote, trying to make the no-budget look big-budget, and a true crime mockumentary seemed like the perfect vessel for it. The cast and crew was small and mostly consisted of friends. The torture victim, Cheryl Dempsey, was played by Dowdle's wife, a role she jokes she got as a honeymoon present. Dowdle's brother co-wrote and produced the film, which was shot in 15 days. There's a sequence where they needed 20 actors to play a SWAT team raiding a house, and they could only afford to rent four SWAT outfits, so they did some tricky editing with the same four guys to get the effect. Dowdle did all the visual effects in the film by hand. By the way, fun story involving Dowdle's wife. There are some pretty brutal scenes of her character being repeatedly drowned by the serial killer that she was extremely excited to film. She said it was the moment that they all realized they were really going for it and that it was super fun to go full unhinged with her performance. But as Dowdle was directing it, he was off camera crying over watching getting his wife roughed up. John Eric Dowdle, the ultimate wife guy. Anyway, I digress. Though missing the ARG element that has propped up many post-Blair Witch found footage films, the Poughkeepsie tapes created a mythology of its own completely by accident. It's worth noting here that in interviews, the director and writer have stated that they made several fake web pages that listed real serial killers with information on the fake serial killer from the movie thrown in. But despite lots of scouring the web, I can't find any evidence of them. But beyond that, originally slated for a 2008 release, MGM pulled the film five weeks prior to the official release date. A second release date for 2009 was then proposed. And then it just disappeared. It wasn't even available as a VOD release until 2014, where it was promptly removed after a mere month of availability. For nearly a decade, the only way you could get your peepers on it was to find a torrent in negative two megapixels and pray you weren't going to release a horde of viruses onto your computer. Finally, Scream Factory quietly released it online in 2017, and it's streaming on Amazon Prime now. Many rumors as to why it fell out of circulation have floated around for years. One suggests that audiences thought that the snuff tapes the film centers on were real. Another suggests it was due to a poor response in the festival circuit. Even more positive that the content was simply too brutal to expose unsuspecting audiences to. Due to the documentary-style presentation and the genuinely disturbing fake snuff tapes within, this actually added to the mystique. Watching it as a low-quality rip on YouTube or a DVD your friend burned made the film more effective. In the behind-the-scenes interviews on the Poughkeepsie Tapes Blu-ray, which I own, the director, as well as his wife, who, as I mentioned, plays the torture victim in the film, agree that not getting a theatrical release was a blessing in disguise, that it's a movie designed to be experienced on a shitty little TV in the dark. If you're a connoisseur of creepy internet gifts of spooky dudes crawling around, such as the infamous clip of a creature on the side of the road from the campy 80s alien movie Extro that's often touted as being real footage of a skinwalker, you've probably seen some clips from the Poughkeepsie tapes. Dowdle later went on to direct the American remake of one of the best found footage movies of all time, Wreck, that's bracket, R-E-C, bracket, under the name Quarantine, as well as the spooky elevator movie Devil. After that, he directed the actually pretty great 2014 found footage movie As Above, So Below. I find this one largely slept on, and that's sad because it's super fun. It's like, what if Indiana Jones was a pretty lady whose love interest was Ginsburg from Mad Men, but also they were stuck in the Paris catacombs and there were ghosts and stuff? Definitely give it a watch. As well as Wreck, which I stress, 
one of the greatest found footage movies of all time. Anyway, around this point is where the cultural language around found footage shifted. I would say at least in part due to the rise of non-horror found footage. The early aughts saw comedy TV following in the footsteps of Christopher Guest's style of comedy mockumentary, a la Spinal Tap and Best in Show. The Office, Arrested Development, Trailer Park Boys, and Parks and Recreation all ran with the approach and garnered wide critical acclaim. Even now, shows like What We Do in the Shadows and American Vandal are still successful. There's something interesting about how found footage interacts with the language and beats of comedy versus how it interacts with horror. This is something I think about pretty often, considering that horror and comedy are more similar than one might have you believe. They're both structured around surprising the audience. One is with a funny joke, the other is with something scary. For a joke, you have a buildup to establish an expectation, subvert the expectation, and then you have the punchline that brings it all together. For horror, it's the exact same, but the punchline is a jump scare. It's all about that tension. Anyway, all that to say that The Office isn't all that different from Cannibal Holocaust structurally, if you, like, really think about it. Probably. So with general audiences at this point more familiar with the language of found footage and the approach being proven to interest audiences, the industry plowed forward. If you were a theatergoer in 2007, settling in to watch the biggest blockbuster of the summer, the first entry in Michael Bay's Transformers series, you would have seen a mysterious teaser trailer. It featured shaky footage from a party in New York City, followed by explosions in the skyline and the striking imagery of the Statue of Liberty's head crashing into the street. There was no title attached to the teaser, only the release date, 08-1808. And more importantly, a producer credit for J.J. Abrams, who at the time was known primarily for his work on Lost. As intended, people lost their shit for it. People speculated all sorts of things, that it was about biblical monsters, or another Godzilla movie, or a Voltron movie, or maybe even something Lovecraftian. Of course, the flash of the Bad Robot Productions logo was a glimmer of hope for Lost to come to the big screen. Only adding to the hype was a series of websites and MySpace pages planted as grassroots marketing, surely inspired by the success of Abrams's tie-in ARG to his show Lost, The Lost Experience. As director Matt Reeves says in this quote that's rambly even after me cutting out a paragraph, quote, it's almost like tentacles that grow out of the film and lead to the ideas in the film. And then there's this weird way where you can go see the movie. But there's also this other place where you can get engaged where there's this other sort of aspect. The internet's sort of stories and connections and clues are, in a way, a prism, and they're another way of looking at the same thing. To us, it's just another exciting aspect of the storytelling. So as you unraveled the threads of the story, or uh, the tentacles, the prism, metaphors, the Cloverfield ARG provided some context to the story that's ultimately inconsequential and kind of nonsensical. The deeper story involves, you know what? I think some very insightful theory videos from circa 2007 YouTube can explain it better than I can. Personally, I thought it was a, a new Godzilla movie. Yeah, I thought it was a Godzilla movie. You know? It made sense. It, it did, you know, I mean, like the, the, the Statue of Liberty going down and I was like, oh, oh, damn. Something like, um, it's going to be something with a human face and a lot of scales or it's a giant whale. We just said, you know what, maybe it's just... A big blob of mass that just doesn't have a definite shape. Exactly, it could be like a cloud. Some stories about, I don't know, they incorporated like slushos and a slusho, which is like a drink or something. Like, I don't know, they incorporated like pollution, how it feeds this monster or something like that. This is the Cloverfield, it's still alive theory. Uh, I'm gonna conduct my own little kind of experiment and deal with it. Uh, I have, just to show you, I have uh, Audacity and the actual original 
help me or help us file thing. So here we go. I'm going to play this, record it on Audacity, and then uh, play it in reverse. Here's what the audio sounds like. Okay, now what I'm going to do, click that. Here's what it sounds like in reverse. I'm going to hook it up to the speaker. Okay, in case you couldn't hear it too well, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure that it said it's still live. I think I think I know how HUD got killed now. HUD probably got killed because um, he was drinking slush show, which ingredients was like, I don't know, bad or something. And probably um, Slusho's ingredients were from underground or under seas and stuff. And what I learned was that those seaweed things, it makes stuff expand. And apparently, I think the monster likes Slusho or something because of the, the ingredients and, um, and those crab things, those crab people. Why is there a horse underground with... Um, Oven. Look at this crab. I'm pointing at like this crab and look. This crab's mad. Yeah, I don't get it. So we have uh ecoterrorism, a mysterious company, slushies, uh who knows. But hey, you could get a slusho AIM avatar. And if you solved the puzzle on one of the websites, it would give you a number you could text to receive a phone wallpaper of a destroyed New York City and a ringtone for the roar of the Cloverfield monster. Your razor or sidekick phone could be tricked out as fuck. Hey, remember when you could accidentally connect to the internet for 30 seconds and then your phone bill would have a huge charge on it? Let's bring that back. I think we should all be punished for logging on. Anyway, Cloverfield is notable to me at least primarily because it seems to be remembered more for the effective and engaging ARG than for the movie itself, much like The Beast, as we talked about earlier. Not to say that it's not good, it's a fun time. But much like the series of diminishing returns of the many sequels, Cloverfield is ultimately pretty forgettable. And that's where we'll close the book, or I guess pop the haunted VHS tape out of the VCR, on this episode of Deep Cuts. Join me next time for the final installment in our series on found footage, where I'll cover what happens to found footage in the modern era of the internet. God, this keeps happening. I swear, ever since we recorded this last episode, I've been hearing really weird shit in my apartment. And maybe it's just paranoia from getting too stoned all the time and watching horror movies, but, like, it's freaking me out. Like, the guy who lived here before me actually died in here, and I keep getting his mail, and, like, legally you cannot throw that away. But I actually did get some weird packages of, like, doll heads, and I did throw that one away. Should I admit to a federal crime on this podcast? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I promise next episode there won't be any weird noises or... You know, shit like that. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you later and stay spooky. Goodbye. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the third, final, and shortest episode of our found footage series. Thus far, we've covered the long road from Hixon, a study of witchcraft, to the groundbreaking 1999 Blair Witch Project, with all the bumps of controversy and meandering film nerd detours along the way. 
As we enter the early aughts and 2010s, the found footage subgenre takes an interesting and necessary turn. In the 90s, we saw the proliferation of consumer-grade production tools allow filmmakers with no budget to be wildly successful. But with the release of the iPhone in 2007 and the creation of Facebook and Twitter in 2004 and 2006, respectively, we suddenly had not only the tools to create professional films, but unprecedented and immediate access to potential audiences across the globe. But the internet is a fickle creature. We now exist in an attention economy, meaning that your attention as a consumer is a finite resource, so brands are constantly competing against each other to hold your eyes, and therefore your money, for as long as possible. Comparatively, in the 90s, there just wasn't that much happening on the internet. Thus, something like the Blair Witch Project ARG could capture and really hold people's attention. Now the deluge of constant content is just exhausting. So sure, in 2020, you can spend your savings on making a found footage horror movie and throw it online, but that doesn't guarantee that anyone will see it. You can't engineer virality. You can do everything quote-unquote right, but if it doesn't hit at the exact right moment or hit the exact people who need to see and share it, you're kind of screwed. But the stories behind the things, whether it be a meme or a YouTube channel, that against all odds do end up successful and spreadable online, are often interesting and surprising. As we inch closer to the present state of found footage, we see that the element of controversy that helped make previous entries in the subgenre successful, even if accidentally, is now practically a prerequisite if you want anyone to even notice you exist. And truly, what better embodiment of horror is there than being at the whim of an invisible monster with an insatiable hunger for blood, guts, and your precious little eyeballs? I'm your host, Leighton Gray, and this is Deep Cuts. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness, where nightmares become reality. Here's Johnny! The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. to get you, Barbara. What's your favorite scary movie? Let's start with an entry in the genre that feels like a true staple of mid-aughts horror, found footage or otherwise. Paranormal activity. Particularly striking is that unlike a lineage of ghost stories that take place in creaky Victorian mansions or abandoned houses, paranormal activity brought the horror of possession into a setting that the average person could relate to, the suburbs. Add in the level of vulnerability that demonic stuff happening in the most personal space possible, the bedroom is here asleep, it's hard not to relate to how grounded that fear is. The inception of this idea came from director Oren Pelly's own experiences moving into a suburban home with his girlfriend, getting spooked by bumps in the night, and setting up a camera to figure out what was causing the noise. It certainly wasn't a demon, but he decided to pursue the idea as a horror movie, shot as cheaply as possible. So after some renovations, brief casting, and their team of only three crew members, including Pelly, they shot the film in seven days. The shoot cost $15,000. Stars Mika Sloat and Katie Featherston were paid $500 each. The casting process, much like the one for the Blair Witch Project, was rigorous in its search for two people who could improvise the entire movie. Let's take a listen to Mika and Katie's audition tape. Hey, babe. $6,000. <laughs> a what? 
<laughs> hey, check out this camera. Ooh. Wait, wait, wait. Well, no, you're kidding me, right? Don't you hey, just hey, 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 don't be shy. Hey, 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 wait. I want you to be talking about stuff. Here we go. Wait, 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 wait. Did you, did you rent this? Yeah. Yeah? My girlfriend. Oh my god, stop that. Do you think this will work? Are you kidding? Do all my plans work? Flawlessly. Can I see? Can you turn it around? Yeah. Careful. So where are we going to put it? Um, I don't know. Wherever you want to put it. held an initial screening at Screamfest, an independent horror festival hosted at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood, where the filmmakers knew they could create a base audience of hardcore horror fans with a vested interest in the genre. It was very popular with critics and horror fans alike, with the Best Lead Actress Award going to Katie Featherston. Among the audience was film critic and producer Steven Schneider, who shared the film with fellow producer Jason Blum, founder of Blumhouse Productions, who continued to use his influence to spread the word about the film throughout the industry. Much like the exhaustive grassroots-focused ARG marketing that was put into promoting the Blair Witch Project, Pelly took a different approach that would still engage potential viewers. With the buzz from Screamfest already established, they launched an ingenious campaign to find targets for limited release. The teaser trailers for Paranormal Activity featured night vision captures of terrified audiences recoiling in fear, covering their faces and screaming, intercut with a few brief moments from the movie, alongside the tagline, Experience it for yourself plus a call to action to demand it to be released in their town. Something that I think irritates most people about modern horror marketing is that executives feel the pressure to put every single jump scare from the movie in the trailer, thus rendering all of them a bit anticlimactic in practice. And since the unconventional nature of the film worked best with no warning beforehand, the very smart approach to marketing focused not on the film itself, but selling the experience the audience could have watching it. So, the demanded advertising campaign revolved around funneling people towards a website with an embeddable Facebook button that put the onus of distribution in the hands of the public. If people wanted to see what the fuss was about, they could vote for the movie to come to their town and encourage friends to do the same. The budget was so small that the producers had to be careful about every decision. So by allowing potential viewers to provide direct, free, valuable market research on their age, location, and interest, they were able to target distribution at areas where they knew they could move tickets. The promise touted by the website was that if one million people demanded it, paranormal activity would release nationwide, and surprise, they hit that benchmark really fast. 
It started with seven screenings in the U.S., expanded to 12 more college towns, then 20 more cities, and within a month in October, right before Halloween, it was released nationwide. A decade after the release of The Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity put found footage back on the map. It jump-started the Blumhouse Productions approach of giving out small budgets to independent filmmakers en masse and throwing as many things as possible at the wall to see what sticks. And of course, the success led to six more entries in the Paranormal Activity franchise, which all have been financially successful, but increasingly lackluster. I would wager that a lot of the found footage fatigue these days is inspired in part by the lazy follow-ups that not only lack the passion of the initial film, but also are bending over backwards to justify the found footage premise rather than building the story around the approach in the first place. On the topic, Jason Blum himself says, quote, In general, a found footage movie is harder to do than a traditional movie. I think for found footage, the idea has to be an idea that can't be told any other way. So if I'm talking to a director and they say, I can do this found footage or I can do it traditional, I'll always encourage them to do it traditionally. Shooting a movie found footage causes more problems than it solves. It's very practical. It's not a creative thing, end quote. And while I think the oeuvre of films he's produced slightly contradicts this statement, there is a nugget of truth there. The best entries in the genre erupt from pure passion and the medium of found footage being at the core of the idea thematically. Cannibal Holocaust is about the recovery of footage from a documentary crew. Same with Blair Witch. Ghost Watch literally only works as a nighttime BBC investigative special. I'll also argue that Unfriended, which is a good movie, is a story that can only be told through a screen capture of a laptop. You can see how clear this becomes when you look at movies that are in my opinion, not successful with this, like the last broadcast. If you suddenly have to break digesis and switch to shooting traditionally to continue the story once you get to the climax, it probably shouldn't have been found footage in the first place. Even though we all get tired of seeing moments in found footage where the camera is placed in an overly convenient way and everyone's like, ugh, who would do that if they're getting murdered? Which, like, true. I would rather suspend my disbelief to buy into that than see the filmmakers just give up on the core premise of their movie. An appreciation of the horror genre requires you to let go of your need to be the smartest person in the room and suspend your disbelief for 90 minutes. I promise you'll have more fun that way. Anyway, back to my point here. As the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. Night of the Living Dead, as mentioned in our first episode, was shot on black and white film not as a stylistic choice, but because they couldn't afford color film. The guy who did the opening crawl narration for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was paid not in money, but with a single joint. The iconic poster for John Carpenter's seminal 1982 classic, The Thing, was painted overnight without any press or reference photos and was shipped while the paint was still wet. All that to say, you have to use limitations to your advantage. Found footage is inherently a workaround to the studio system, a way to make a no-budget movie seem big-budget. So why not just attack your creative problems from a different angle instead of taking the easy way out? You might just turn $15,000 into $193.4 million at the box office, which and I'll say it again because it blows my mind, makes Paranormal Activity the most profitable film ever made, independent or otherwise. And then that spun into a franchise that is worldwide grossed over 890.5 million. At this point, despite the availability of consumer-grade video production tools making it easier to actually get a film made, there were still only very specific avenues that people could get their films seen. Festivals, knowing the right people, blood packs with Satan, etc. 
So to work around that, what would happen to found footage if there was suddenly a way for anyone anywhere to make their films instantly accessible around the globe? At this juncture, the subgenre needed to either change or die. And so it changed. YouTube was launched on Valentine's Day 2005 with the slogan, Tune In, Hook Up, because at its inception, it was an online dating service with a focus on videos. They were met with a less than enthusiastic response, which led to them turning to Craigslist to pay women $20 to make videos for the site. A tempting offer to be sure, which shockingly no one took them up on. So in the wake of the legendary Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake Super Bowl nip slip and its lack of availability online, creators Chad Hurley, Steve Chen, and Joed Kareem saw the blank space on the whiteboard of the internet. What if there was a way for anyone to share videos online in a centralized hub? The dating service element was ditched, and within months, it became one of the fastest growing websites on the internet. And that, my friends, was the nipple that changed the internet forever. The first YouTube video ever uploaded was an 18-second clip posted by Joed Kareem called Me at the Zoo. Here is that legendary and genuinely historic clip. All right, so here we are in front of the uh, elephants. The cool thing about these guys is that, is that they have really, really, really long um, fronts, and that's that's cool. And that's pretty much all there is to say. In 2006, and for years after, the most viewed video on YouTube was in fact not nipple-related, but a video called Evolution of Dance, which, at this point, some of you might not even have been born yet. It's literally just a negative five megapixel video of a dude in an orange crush shirt dancing to a medley of popular songs with all the grace of your best friend's dad tearing it up at a middle school dance. That shit was the height of comedy. Anyway, this is all just trivia. Again, you're a captive audience. I can do this all day. What I'm really getting at here is trying to set the stage for something the internet had never seen, its first web series. On June 16th, 2006, a 16-year-old girl named Bree posted her first vlog to her YouTube channel, Lonely Girl 15. Hi guys, um, so this is my first video blog. Um, well, I guess a video blog is about me. My name is Bree, I'm 16. Um, I don't really wanna tell you where I live because you could like, stalk me. Oh, well, what you need to know about my town is that it's really boring. Like, really boring. Really, really boring. Um, that's probably why I spend so much time on my computer. She sits on her bed in a nondescript bedroom, a hot pink boa dangling from her doorknob. She talks about the YouTubers she likes, how the town she lives in is boring, and the video ends with her dancing around her room and making silly faces. In the next video, she wants to go to a party, but her parents won't let her. For all intents and purposes, Brie seemed like a normal, goofy teenage girl, self-consciously sharing her life with an unseen audience. But of course, behind the scenes, there were three puppet masters holding the strings of Brie's life. Mesh Flinders, Greg Goodfried, and Miles Beckett, who were, respectively, a screenwriter, a former attorney, and a surgical residency dropout. The inception of the idea came from Miles Beckett, who was very plugged into the scene of early YouTube. Virality at the time was a bit of a mystery. The most viewed YouTube videos of 2006 included Laughing Babies, Numa Numa Guy, and a pre-smosh Ian Hecox and Anthony Padilla as literal children lip-syncing to the Pokemon theme song in their bedroom. If you had a webcam and a bit of enthusiasm, you could rack up millions of views. Beckett and the other filmmakers paid close attention to the confessional style of popular vloggers. But this all gave him an idea. What if you could use the format of a video blog to tell a narrative? And how long could you get the audience to buy into it? 
To make it believable, they needed an actor who was naturalistic and an excellent improviser. They quickly found actress Jessica Lee Rose, who was 19 at the time, but passed for 16. The first two videos posted to the Lonely Girl 15 channel were meme video responses to other popular YouTubers, which just added to the veracity and feeling of normalcy of the channel. Then came the vlogs, filmed in Rose's actual bedroom with a bit of set dressing. Due to the wild, wild west nature of YouTube at the time, Lonely Girl 15 stood out for her goofiness and candor, and quickly became one of the most popular channels on YouTube. So this was prior to the days of custom YouTube thumbnails, so the creators figured out a way to game the thumbnail scrubbing algorithm to optimize how to get the most thematically accurate and attention-grabbing images. Now, this is just basic stuff that even your average 12-year-old Minecraft enthusiast can whip up in a pirated version of Photoshop, but back then this was a huge deal, and it actually worked. They also figured out that comment sections would count responses from the creator as actual discussion, and would cause the videos to trend if they were active there. Plus, it fostered a sense of intimacy that doesn't really feel as possible now with the current nightmare hellscape state of YouTube comments. Remember that? Remember when the description for the video was on the right? Memories. But this could only work for so long. How long could you get a 2006 audience to buy in? As it turns out, about four months. As a clear plotline began to emerge throughout the videos and got progressively creepier, her best friend Daniel totally doesn't have feelings for her or anything. Her strained relationship with her parents becomes more contentious. She hints at her commitment to her mysterious religion and her preparation for a ceremony that the quote-unquote church wants her to do. People began to get suspicious. Journalists and other online sleuths were determined to prove the whole thing was a hoax, and yet again, the controversy only drummed up more hype. Bree's videos could get hundreds of thousands of views within hours. Eventually, some IP trackers found evidence linking Bree's MySpace page to LA-based creative agency, the California Arts Agency, and the jig was finally up. On October 8th, 2006, the LA Times posted an article, Mystery Fuels Huge Popularity of Web's Lonely Girl 15, that blew the whole thing open. News outlets ran with it. Even the New York Times got in on it, to the point that the creators had to hold a press conference to address the entire thing. Despite the furor, the series continued as planned, and eventually, Brie gets killed off. The last we hear of her is this voicemail. Hey guys, it's me. Right now I'm sitting on a rock not too far from the cabin and thinking about all of you and all of this, just everything. This is really hard for me. I've been sitting here trying to figure out what I can say to you that will make you understand why I have to do what I'm about to do. As long as I'm with you guys, you'll never be free. The order isn't gonna let me go, not ever. And if I stay with you, they'll always be out there, waiting and watching. We can't ever really stop them this way. So I've made my decision. I made the decision that I'm going back and I'm gonna do the ceremony. I want you guys to promise me something. You have to promise me that you'll find the other girls and help them. I know they're out there and one of them is next. New characters and plot lines were introduced, the series ran for several more years, inspired a few spin-offs, 
and it actually became the first web series to get product placement. Hershey's Icebreaker Sour Scum. It's hard to know who to trust. Hey, what is that? What? Icebreaker Sour Scum. Can I have a piece? <laughs> I would I would love a piece. Um, yes. I only have four left. What do you mean, you? there's only three of us in the car? Come on. I know, but I... Come on. We came all the way out here to pick you up. That's exactly right, so... so okay. uh, besides, my mouth That's right it. now feels like... Okay, yes, okay. Thank you. All right, thank you. Oh, wow. oh that's so messed up. <laughs> oh <laughs> my god. Whoa, it's Lonely Girl 15 was a landmark moment not only for YouTube, but for the internet in general. Being nearly 15 years out from the first video, the landscape of the internet has changed drastically. Fake news is the norm. Everyone does vlogs, and there are so many web series that I can't keep track of them all. We have sponsored content out the wazoo. Gone is that sense of tight-knit community, support, and trust. And whether we like it or not, existence on the internet means you are flattened into the dreaded capital B brand. As co-creator Flinders said in a semi-recent video, quote, On YouTube now, we wouldn't get away with this for 30 seconds. People would know she's fake immediately. No one will ever trust anyone on YouTube again. End quote. Web Forum Something Awful was the multi-headed broodmother of a bevy of internet phenomena, including Let's Plays, You're the Man Now Dog, Photoshop Battles, 4chan, countless memes like All Your Base Are Belong to Us, at Drill, and not to mention a generation of overly cynical internet denizens. But most relevant to what we're talking about, a now infamous 2009 Photoshop contest thread called, quote, Create Paranormal Images, which is exactly what it says on the tin with users trying to propagate fake paranormal photos to see if any unsuspecting people might find the images and think they're real. It quickly was populated with artifacted edits of UFOs, mystical orbs, ghosts, and the like. In the thread, user Eric Knudsen, under the name Victor Surge, shared two innocuous images of children playing, with an ominous, tall, suited figure looming in the background. He accompanied these with short captions that expanded on the idea, something that would become a hallmark of found creepy images online. One read, We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. And that, my friends, was the birth of the internet's own mythic boogeyman, Slenderman. Ten days after the original Slenderman thread, Something Awful user Troy Wagner made a post in character as Jay Merrick on the essay forums that shared the first entry in the Marble Hornets mythos. The story follows the discovery of a series of disturbing tapes left behind by the friend of the protagonist who was working on a student film. Plot twist, Slenderman, referred to as the operator, shows up and spooky things happen. Much like Lonely Girl 15, this series went on for several years and spawned a spinoff as well as a direct-to-video movie. While active, it was wildly popular. Most of the videos have racked up millions of views, and the channel still has over 500,000 subscribers. I think Marble Hornet speaks to the power of modern ARGs. Slenderman was created by one guy, sure, but the internet collectively accelerated an urban legend that might only have been spread by word of mouth through generations without it. And the fandom would certainly not exist without the audience that Marble Hornets developed. 
The collaborative nature of the mythos fueled the fire with thousands of people contributing their own theories and iterations, such as numerous blogs, other horror series like Everyman Hybrid, Tribe 12, The Four Steps, video games like Slenderman Arrival and Slenderman The Seven Pages, and of course, the absolutely dreadful big-budget Slenderman movie, which I think inherently couldn't work as an extension of the story because a big-budget movie removes what's essential to it an amorphous, DIY, collective imagining that the audience builds together. On the other, darker side of the coin, that collective imagining also inspired two nearly fatal stabbings and a house fire that the perpetrators claimed were spurred on by Slenderman. The stabbing of 12-year-old Peyton Lutner especially received a lot of media attention, which, of course, it did, because the topic is very sensational. Two kids almost stab another to death because a fictional character on the internet told them to, not to downplay the crime, but that's like the ultimate clickbait, and it was likely the true death knell of the by-then-years-old Slenderman fandom. But to be clear, the Slenderman stabbing is far from the only case of a piece of fiction, quote-unquote, inspiring someone already struggling with mental illness to commit a crime. Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon because of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. John Hinckley Jr. watched Taxi Driver, became obsessed with Jodie Foster, and shot Reagan to prove his love. Wanting to become Freddy Krueger from Friday the 13th, Daniel Gonzalez went on a killing spree and murdered four people. The Nutcases gang, based out of Oakland, formed their group by playing GTA 3 together and then killing people in the streets much in the same way you can in-game. Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie was The Exorcist 3. His crimes were clearly at least partially inspired by it, and he even played a VHS of it for one of his victims. The list truly goes on ad nauseum. There are way more of these than you think there are. The Slenderman stabbings just so happened to be the perfect story that hit at the perfect time. Anyway, at this point, Slenderman has been done to death, but he was an unavoidable specter over internet culture in the 2010s and brought creepypasta to the mainstream. And now for a word from our sponsors. <laughs> hey guys, um, in light of everything that's been happening, I just wanted to issue a formal apology. Um, to all the Deep Cuts listeners out there, I messed up, and I'm sorry, and I I had a huge lapse in judgment and in common sense, and I did some really bad things, and I just wanted to be honest um, and open with you about what's been going on. This is really, um, this is really hard for me. So, I thought that a partnership with Toothly would be a good idea. And now I know that was wrong. I, I don't know why I thought working with a company selling questionably real teeth would be okay to do. But they sent me a bunch of free teeth. And how could you say no to that? <laughs> and then I got that call from the FBI about there being evidence in an ongoing case. And that was the worst day of my life. <laughs> and then we found out that the clash action lawsuit was happening, and it was great. And then they found out that it was being thrown out because of a conflict of interest, and that we weren't even going to get any money. <laughs> And that was the second worst day of my life. And my lawyer says 
that I can't even say anything further because I'm being subpoenaed for the original disposal of human remains trial. But I just had to speak out because how else are people going to know that I'm a good person? I am so, so sorry. I, I have a lot of growing to do and I need to step up and be better and, and be held accountable for my actions. I'm listening. I'm learning. And um, I'm sorry. I really hope you can um, someday forgive me. Whew. Well, that was all bullshit. Wait, am I still recording? In the year 2017, post-Lonely Girl 15, post-Marble Hornets, how do you innovate on the concept of taking a creepypasta, running with it, and turning it into a found footage ARG without feeling trite? Enter Petska. All right, so uh, this is just to um, prove to you but I'm not lying about this game that I found. I'm just gonna walk you through everything that I've seen so far. And, uh, obviously to be exactly as I described it, because this is it. Using the format of a casual YouTube Let's Play, Petscop is about a guy named Paul who found a weird PS1 video game called Petscop, and is making a playthrough to show to his unnamed friend to prove that it's real. And uh, the first level is over here. I'm just gonna keep going a bit here so you can see that the game is apparently unfinished because there's nothing over here. So, I'm just gonna show you the, the one and only level. This actually is not the interesting part, but I'm just uh, gonna show you, I'm gonna walk you through all this so you can see that this is exactly what I described. Those familiar with the tropes of creepypasta may recognize this setup. Person finds a copy of a popular video game. The video game is haunted. Characters' eyes turn red and bad things happen. And if you don't copy the story into all of your friends' pages, evil possessed Wario is gonna come to your house and stand at the foot of your bed or whatever the fuck. I'm a Wario. I'm a gonna win. For other examples of this, see Ben Drowned, the NES Godzilla Creepypasta, Sonic.exe, and just so many others. The difference here is that unlike a typo-ridden block of text, Petscop takes the idea and fleshes it out. Why read about a haunted video game when you can watch it being played in a format that YouTube viewers typically associate with lighthearted escapism in a way that takes advantage of the viewer's expectations of Let's Plays? While it's convincing, the series wears its unreality on its sleeve. It doesn't do much work to convince the audience it's real, and it doesn't really need to. Petscop has a great soundtrack, really original visuals, a compelling performance by the main character, and the love that went into making a fake video game from the ground up, obviously just at a cosmetic level, is honestly really impressive. It gets the audience involved by posing questions and not answering them, making the whole thing ripe for some ARG action. While trying to unravel the mystery behind Petscop, 
Fans clocked that there were multiple references to the case of Candace Newmaker, a 10-year-old girl who was smothered to death during a controversial and now very illegal therapy process called rebirthing. Petscop revolves around the themes of child abuse, neglect, and the pitfalls of the adoption system, so it seems like a natural connection to make on the part of the creator. There was a lot of speculation and controversy over the references to such a grisly case, with the complaints being that it was exploiting a tragedy for shock value. Creator Tony Domenico has since stated that while the references to the Newmaker case were intentional, he now regrets them. That said, while the Fuhrer might have been unintentional, that controversy surely fueled interest in the series. Beyond Petscop, even real video games have gotten in on the found footage approach. Sam Barlow's games Telling Lies and Her Story use a desktop simulator as means for the player to piece together a mystery by searching through archives of police interrogations, on-the-street recordings, and webcam footage. The horror series Outlast is framed from the perspective of an investigative journalist with a camcorder, with a core mechanic revolving around using a night vision camera to see monsters. Indie developer Puppet Combo's The Riverside Incident is a short walking simulator presented through the lens of a camcorder in Puppet Combo's distinctive retro style where, spoiler alert, it's revealed that instead of a murderer coming after you, the player is the murderer. It's pretty cute. With all of these video game examples introducing player agency into a found footage narrative, it emphasizes the inherent voyeurism of the subgenre and adds a level of complicity that I find really interesting. Petscop, Marble Hornets, and Lonely Girl 15 have all pushed the envelope and expanded how we consume found footage in a way that opened a door for other internet-based found footage experiences. We've even seen the format move into stories on Twitter, like comic artist Adam Ellis's Dear David threads, or through Snapchat, like the infamous Reddit post, quote, took a Snapchat for my friends. Something in the background has me freaking out. Thoughts? End quote. That particular post is a story from Reddit's hub for creepypasta, r slash no sleep, by user Skinna555. The original poster shares videos he took on Snapchat that seem to have disturbing figures in the background. The saga becomes heavily integrated with the sleuthing of commenters and real-time updates, with the prevailing theory being that OP is dealing with a home invasion and might be in danger. Of course, this was just a really expertly executed creepypasta, but it's again an interesting innovation of combining Reddit and Snapchat and user input to create a story. In parallel, studio productions have pursued internet-based desktop simulator found footage films as well, with movies like The Den, Megan is Missing, The Unfriended Movies, which are good actually, and Searching, which is bad actually, attempting to iterate on the idea. In the sequel to one of my favorite found footage movies, Creep, Creep 2 follows a YouTuber who puts herself in danger to get her channel off the ground. That probably sounds hacky, but in practice, it's very fun. These types of movies generally seem to be pretty hit or miss, in my opinion, because they often come off as people who are out of touch making movies that demonize technology. But that said, if you can look past that, they're really fun. And now with so many film and TV productions suspended due to safety concerns and much of our work and social lives now taking place over Skype and Zoom, we're already starting to see a bit of a resurgence in this style of filmmaking with more desktop simulation movies like Host. Again, this is a true case of necessity being the mother of invention. So before we wrap up this series, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't dedicate some time to recommending great found footage movies for you to watch in one convenient place so you don't have to scrub through these episodes with a notepad. So if you're looking for something to curl up at home and get spooky with, I'm here for you. 
And we're going to go full relaxed fit here, so I'm going to drop the NPR voice. All right, there we go. What's up, YouTube? Let's do it. So I'm going to recommend these based on vibes. Consider me your horror vibes sommelier, uh, so to speak. This is our specials for this evening. I'm going to throw out a disclaimer here that my metric of whether or not a horror movie is good is based on if I had fun watching it. So while a few of these recommendations might not be, you know, the pinnacle of filmmaking, I really think they're worth checking out just because sometimes you want to have a nice time watching something silly. So yeah, here we go. I'll start with my favorites and what I think are the strongest entries in the genre. If you watch anything that I've mentioned throughout this series, if you haven't seen it already, Blair Witch Project, just do it. It's great. And Ghost Watch, absolutely. I think if I had to choose a personal favorite in terms of found footage movies, I would go with the Poughkeepsie tapes because it really is that perfect balance of fucked up and tongue in cheek. And if you like Forensic Files or any sort of like true crime documentary, it's just like, what if that, but we had actual fucked up video of the murders? I don't know if that's a great pitch. It's very good and you should watch it. And then the director who we talked about in the last episode went on to direct As Above, So Below, which is another super fun found footage movie that's a fun trek through the Paris catacombs with heavy Indiana Jones vibes. Additionally, the 2007 Spanish Rec, which is bracket, R-E-C, bracket, like recording, is probably one of the best, if not the best, found footage movies ever. Um, It's a great quarantine watch, considering it takes place with the filmmakers trapped inside of an apartment while a virus infects people and makes them wild out and start killing each other. Actually, now that I say it, it might be a very bad quarantine watch, but it's a great movie. Another one of my favorites is Neroy, The Curse, which takes a really fun approach by being a mockumentary about a guy, a paranormal investigator who goes missing while searching for ghosts. It's super fun. I'm a huge sucker for any sort of ancient demon narrative, and the movie is just chock full of very original and memorable imagery. If you're new to horror, want something that's just a little bit scary or you spook easily, I have a few recommendations for you. These are usually my go-tos when I'm first trying to get friends into horror for the first time, and maybe these will boil the frog for you too. You'll be watching Hostel and Martyrs in no time. Or not. Up to you. Anyway, first up is Creep, which, as mentioned, is a super low-budget movie starring Mark Duplass. It follows a filmmaker answering a Craigslist call for a videographer and venturing to a cabin in the woods to meet an eccentric man who wants him to help make a video for his unborn son because he's dying of cancer. As the day progresses, that story begins to fall apart. Things get creepy. I won't spoil any of it. But Duplass gives such a great performance, and it's a really cute movie. Of course, I call a movie about murder cute. That's just it's just how I am. So the sequel, Creep 2, follows another videographer getting tangled up with Duplass's character, and it's just as fun as the first. Another great diet horror movie that I'm personally not the biggest fan of, but that most people I know love, is the Australian Lake Mungo. It's a pretty grounded mockumentary about the drowning of a 16-year-old girl and her family struggling with seemingly supernatural occurrences in the wake of her death. It's less concerned with scares and more with creating an unsettling atmosphere, and it's pretty successful with it. If you liked the sorts of hidden background ghosts in Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House, you'll probably like this one a good bit. Another semi-serious mockumentary-turned-horror-style one is The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is meant to be a medical documentary about a woman's struggle with Alzheimer's, but that slowly turns into a possession narrative. The special effects and imagery in this one are just, chef's kiss, and I really do think about them a lot. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, if you want something brutal that's probably going to ruin your night, Obviously, Cannibal Holocaust is a great pick. You also have Megan is Missing, which 
truly is a god-awful desktop simulation exploitation movie that I I won't explicitly recommend. I'm just saying that it sucks, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so there you go. As I mentioned a few times in this series, Be My Cat, a film for Anne, is another no-budget, particularly messed-up found-footage film that really hinges on an excellent performance by the writer, director, and lead actor. The story follows a budding filmmaker who goes to, let's say, extreme lengths to convince Anne Hathaway to star in his debut feature. Are you in the mood for something based on a true story? Ty West's The Sacrament is a genuinely chilling retelling of the Jonestown Massacre, but as told through... I'm not kidding. A team of Vice documentary bros trying to track down one of their sisters who's in a cult. It is really, really horrifying and honestly still scares me on rewatches. Another great one is Zero Day, which is a loose retelling of the Columbine shooting. In fact, people have actually mistakenly shared footage from this movie thinking it was actual footage from Columbine High School. But it's a low-budget, heavily improvised view into the lives of two teens leading up to a shooting with really great performances from the leads. As you'll see over and over again, found footage like really hinges on those performances being naturalistic, which Zero Day just absolutely has in spades. If you want some movies that aren't strictly found footage, but that incorporate heavy found footage elements, I also have a few suggestions. One is the 2012 remake of Maniac, which was a really famous 80s slasher exploitation movie, but this remake stars Elijah Wood as a mannequin-obsessed serial killer who collects women's scalps. It's not found footage, but the whole thing is shot from the POV of the killer, which makes it really feel like a found footage movie in approach. It has a super great synthy soundtrack, and it's generally just a delight to see Elijah Wood's baby face going full unhinged. If you want to feel really film school and really artsy while also getting a little bit of found footage in there, director Michael Haneke has a long-running fascination with found footage. You might recognize the name since he directed Funny Games, The White Ribbon, The Piano Teacher, Amour, you know, like highbrow Oscar-nominated Palme d'Or winning fucked up shit. Needless to say, he's one of my favorite directors. But anyway, his movie Benny's Video is about a movie-obsessed teenager who commits a murder on tape, and Caché, which is easily one of my all-time favorite movies in general, is about a TV presenter whose family is terrorized by strange drawings and long videotapes of their home showing up on their doorstep. They're both pretty dry, and like most of Henneke's stuff, not Really horror movies, but they're really good and they make you feel smart and also kind of gross. So it's a win-win there. You want aliens? We got aliens. Alien Abduction Incident in Lake County is awesome and highly recommended. Additionally, and this is one of the not actually good but pretty fun movies, The Fourth Kind starring Mia Hovovich is a great silly time. And finally, if you want something less spooky and a bit more on the fun horror comedy side, check out the WNUF Halloween special. It's a very by-the-numbers parody of Ghostwatch, but what's really special about it is that it's mostly commercial breaks that perfectly capture the feeling of watching late-night TV in the 90s, replete with ads for local businesses and as-seen-on-TV products. It's not an incredible movie, but it was made on a budget of $500 and is a pretty fun watch even though it's ultimately underwhelming. For a more traditional horror comedy, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon is a fun riff on Man Bites Dog with a documentary crew following a funny and charming wannabe serial killer. Again, it's not amazing, but it's a fun watch with friends. Honestly, you should just watch Man Bites Dog because that movie was really the blueprint for a lot of this stuff and is a delightful time. All right, that's all I got. There's some others I didn't mention here for time reasons, but if you want to see a written list of all the ones I just talked about and where to watch them, you can visit the link in the description.
Throughout this series, you've probably picked up on some of the common threads that make a found footage film special. Whether it's the semblance of reality that causes controversy, having a lack of budget that forces the filmmakers to come up with creative solutions, hiring actors with strong improv skills, or creating a sprawling ARG, the great entries in the subgenre are marked by pure passion and a strong creative vision. More than anything, the best contributions to found footage are presented through the lens of a handheld camera, not because it's easy, but because these stories couldn't be told in any other way. And despite all the other great entries in the subgenre we've talked about here, the Blair Witch Project still stands out in the cultural consciousness 20 years later. It was brilliant and should be remembered as such. To some, it might just be kids yelling at each other in the woods that inspired decades of other people yelling at each other in different spooky locales, but I hope this story gave some insight into why it's so much more than that and what brought us to that pivotal moment in horror history. What does the future hold for found footage? I truthfully don't really know. But looking at this chronology, and especially the iterations on the genre that the internet has enabled, I think you'll agree that there are exciting and fresh things in store. That's what makes horror fun. It continually morphs with the anxieties of day-to-day existence in a way that allows us to conquer our own fears and have fun doing it. No need to turn around. It's only me. Stop! I'm so fucking sick of this shit! You don't scare me! Sorry, I'm just... I'm not sleeping, and I'm I'm really tired of this. Anyway, sincerely, thank you for joining me on this journey. It was exciting and inspiring to write and spin this yarn, and I'm glad that I got to share it with you. I hope you'll join me next time for another... Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash late night.